Hey, what's going on? This episode of the Filmworms podcast is sponsored by the gun running of Ordell Roby. Whether AR or AK, Ordell can hook you up. Listeners of the podcast are entitled to a free Glock. Just give him a call and compliment his braided soul patch. Tell him you're a listener of the podcast and you should be good to go. Ordell Roby gun running. Ow! It just makes me more comfortable to clap. All right. Wow. The day is here. Jackie <laughs> Brown, Quentin Tarantino, Elmore Leonard, Sunday. How you doing, Tanner? I'm doing well. How about you, Matt? You're in I'm a pretty good basement. I am in a basement. My, I've had a lot of locations. I feel like every episode I'm in a new place. Uh, you're you're fleeing. You're fleeing the law. That's what it feels like. Exactly. I'm on the lamb. First, I was it was precariously stacked on some boxes in Los Angeles, and then it was in Maine, various locations in Maine, and now Pennsylvania. So, hey. If only Winston could track you down. Winston is quick. They quick give him a line at the end. That's such a funny line when Ordell says, uh, I bet it was your idea to take that picture, too. <laughs> That's really good. Really good. Not in the book. Uh, yeah. It's a tricky movie in that way. Like I know, uh, obviously this movie or Tarantino specifically got some shit from Spike Lee for all the use of the N word in this movie, mm-hmm. which is uh, totally valid, especially because it's not in the book. But um, I do think all the stuff with racial relationships in this movie is so interesting and like really emotional and earnest in a cool way, mm-hmm. even if it's coming from you know a white guy who loves to talk in um, a <laughs> black accent. A white guy who loves to code switch when it's not applicable. Um, <laughs> I don't know. We That's a big thing to do. Should we talk about that? Should we wait? Because that's heady. And I don't want to, you know, that's, I have thoughts about that. Because I feel like it's a little, it is, to me, it was like, there's totally elements of it that are like, maybe not great. But then at the same time, it is like immersed in this new context. So it's like he is a, it's not like he's it wasn't like he adapted the novel and kept it in the original setting and then added a bunch of the n-word. You know what I mean? It was like he completely put in a new context with new characters. Um so it feels like it feels like it was transforming the story and then the language change was a natural or like organic thing, but at the same time like I do think Tarantino is like kind of infatuated with the n-word at the same time. So it's hard to sparse. No, exactly. I, I I completely agree and I think that's what's I think it's really interesting too because like there are certain elements of the of the novel that you know outside of it not literally having the n-word as much that are like more troubling racially um in certain ways and i don't know you know tarantino made this movie like almost at the altar of pam greer you know with so much Mm -hmm. love whether you know that is a certain kind of objectification or appropriation too it clearly comes from like a really tender place and Mm -hmm. and and, i don't know and through that the relationship between max and jackie has a totally different weight to it that it doesn't have in the book because there's none of that you know crossing racial boundaries 
I don't even know if that's the right way to say that. Um, out of my depth no. here a little bit, but, but you know what I mean. Um, I do know what you mean. Well, I think it's well. It's also because the casting is so well and the chemistry is really good. It really adds a third dimension. Whereas I feel like if it would, that stuff was in the book, it would seem gratuitous. It would seem genre like crime, hard boiled, like um, would be I don't know, like a white guy trying to be like suburban. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And I feel like for I just think the actors are so good. They embody in a way that does feel real. And then you can critique it whether it should be made or should be done differently, I think. But I do think it like it doesn't feel there are a couple places, I think, but uh there's a there's very few places where you can where I think I can hear the writer's hand. You know what yeah. I mean? There's no, one definitely. place there's one place I hear it and it took me out of it. I want to know what your thoughts were. And then maybe we should go into Elmore Leonard because I, I know you prepared a whole piece about him. Um when 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 Max says he kind of cuts off Ordell and he says is white guilt supposed to make me forget that I'm running a business and I feel like that was like dude, for whatever reason I just felt like if he had just said guilt we would have known the context and it would have sounded more it, for whatever reason I don't know why I was like that seemed like a, a line from a script as opposed to a character speaking dude do you know what I mean or is not really? I know what you mean but I also I it's funny I clocked that and I loved that because that's not in the book even though you know Ordell is black in the book and Max is white but I like that because it's like and this is something that's that's hammered home in the book more explicitly because it has you know time and room to get into these things but like max is a bail bondsman like yeah he's super noble and seems like a real moral guy but like he's bad like that's there's mm -hmm. no such thing as a good bail bondsman you know and especially in like a racist society like this so he's part of this and i like that line because it's like you know a that is what ordell is doing and and b Max can be just as shitty in that same kind of way. Um, I, I know what you mean, though. Like, mm -hmm. it's, it, it definitely feels additional. Um, and, the, you know, there's it, – it's – because it is something the book gets into, too. There's there's the part where uh, Ordell – where we're kind of with Ordell in the way that Leonard writes. And he says something I, – I didn't write the line down – but something about how now Lewis is, you know – they'd be exactly the same except lewis is white and he wouldn't have to worry about something or hold on maybe i did write it down damn it <laughs> oh yeah yeah lewis you only think you're a good guy you're just like me only you turned out white i also love <laughs> turned out you know because it's like born into this world um, yeah because it's like ordell is both playing that manipulation game but it but it's real you know um yeah it's it's not it's like uh to make a connection have you seen um what's it called the people versus oj simpson yes great series um so good where they're kind of like where johnny cochran's being consoled by his wife being like oj's an imperfect vessel but like this stuff is real so it's kind of like oj clearly killed his wife but at the same time like police officers in Los Angeles are historically terribly racist. It's kind of like that. Totally, totally. That's such a good comparison. Yeah, it's the same thing where both things are true. And there are other things. It, 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 well, what's so interesting about like the criticisms of the movie is like, and obviously it's just a movie, so it's going to get more criticism than some, you know, even if it's Elmore Leonard, what's essentially like a dime store novel, um, just isn't going to get as much attention. But like, you know, Tarantino leaves out the, the cops <laughs> shooting a black kid and then lying about it lying about like the order of events you know uh he leaves i don't that. remember that from the book 
Um, in the book, so in the in the book, we spend more time with uh, Michael Keaton and the other cop, basically mm-hmm. um, Nicolette, and in the book, he's called Tyler, and they're like tailing Ordell, and they see another one of his quote unquote Jack boys, which is essentially what. Oh, Bob I was. remember Jack boy. Yeah, okay. right. He has yeah. a bunch of them, but he uh, they follow the kid, and then the kid kind of challenges them, and he does have a gun, but they start shooting him before they know he has a gun, and then stay that he had a gun, which is, and then so the other partner gets shot too and spends time in the hospital along with the other kid. Um, which is du- kind of doubled in the end where Jackie um, in the book and the mm-hmm. movie is like, Ray, he's got a gun, even though she doesn't know if Ordell has a gun. She can assume, but she's also using like the kind of racist nature of cops against Ordell, you know, um, which I, I think that I think that's really interesting. That whole like how it's all murky, how everyone's playing by these rules that are terrible and taking advantage of them. Um, no, that so is think- interesting. Yeah, no, that is really interesting about about this work. It feels like they're like they're kind of like channeling along the grooves that are already there, but it feels yeah. like it's not necessarily authentic. You know what I mean? It's like they're yeah, using yeah, yeah, it yeah. to to get to advance their own agenda, and they all have their own agenda except for Max's agenda is like to help Jackie. So the so you I think you inherently latch onto him and you think he's good, even though as you point out, he is a bail bondsman. I don't think that there's a good because I had that moment too, and I. The only reason I knew a little bit it's a little shady because obviously the nature of the work he's doing in the film, but um, listening to like, I think it's like the Innocence podcast. It's like maybe the Innocence Projects podcast about how much like bail undermines the justice system because it's like if you have, it just creates so many problems. It's just like if you have money, you can get out. If not, you stay in jail. If you stay in jail, you lose your job. Like it just creates the whole thing. Um, So I know that context, but to me, it's like, I don't think, that is super obvious to to those of us coming to the movie fresh who don't have like an informed uh, totally totally yeah. true and in the book like i said they do you know like there there are parts about how like you know max talks in the mo- in the book he's he's married separated from his wife but married um and kind of trying to like get the balls to divorce his wife um, but he, <laughs> I, he, I forgot that that's i know it's so funny yeah um, that is such like, a funny oh sorry to cut you off it is because in the it is way more uh in the book like my my ex is spending me to the poorhouse. like it's such a like old man <laughs> like sad like so i have true. to keep working because my ex-wife has a shopping addiction yeah and she's fucking like a young painter dude who hates max <laughs> um but there's a part where he he kind of gets into how for a bail bondsman, he's kind of a soulful guy, which definitely comes across in the movie, mostly through Robert Forster's performance. Um, but like he talks about how he like reads poetry and how his wife would kind of like be like, yeah, you read poetry and you're a bail bondsman and a cop because he was like a cop mm-hmm. previously in the book, which is maybe I don't think triple threat said in the movie, <laughs> triple threat. <laughs> poetry, police work, bail bondsman. Um but yeah, anyway, uh but yeah, let's uh Elmore Leonard. Um I've have you read any other books of his? I haven't. You lent me this book as well as Out of Sight and Out of Sight was one of the books that shamed me as it was on my shelf cuz I didn't read it the, <laughs> for over a year after you lent it to me along with The Long Goodbye. I did read Rum Punch though last summer. Um in prep for the podcast. It was a long long game. We're playing a long game. <laughs> long gone. Um but he's a writer I think maybe because of Tarantino that I've been aware of. Um, he's kind of like, I feel like the next, it's like he, I think this is interesting and I'll turn the mic over to you, but he like wants to be viewed. He's, I read something online that he, he was more influenced by Hemingway and Steinbeck and says that he wants to be like kind of compared with that as opposed to like Raymond Chandler. 
but I feel like that's what comes to mind for me. It's like Raymond yeah, Chandler. Still is like Leonard. the next Raymond Chandler. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, even if you think that, I don't think you can say that. Like, <laughs> if I was a famous writer and they just and I was just in any conversation, maybe just because I'm on the outside of this, but like, I wouldn't be like Raymond Chandler, more like Ernest Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Um, yeah, yeah, I, it's it's so true. And I, um, yeah, I've only read this and Out of Sight, which is kind of. I mean, clearly, it's just because of those two movies, um, which I think is the way a lot of people our age probably come to Elmer Leonard. It's certainly uh, something that surprised me. Um, I think it's also Be Cool and Get Shorty. I feel like our parents totally. were into those. Yeah, like, love I feel Get like my Shorty. dad rented that. My dad likes John Travolta, I think. <laughs> That's awesome. Like, I mean, I love John Travolta, too, but that is funny, like, to be a person <laughs> that you like, especially now, you know? um oh god oh tanner yeah. real quick and he turned on the gain one i think i'm getting a little click and then oh, i'm gonna click. i'm gonna be quiet because i want to hear what you've prepared okay H how does this sound sounds good great defeat the click um but yeah it's it's funny like something because i feel like I, I don't know i've known who he was for a long time i think just because of these movies and generally being like oh he's the crime writer that a lot of people whose work a lot of people adapt into film and television you know um mm -hmm. Even like, you know, Justified, which I've hardly watched, but everyone I know loves and I've I need to watch it. Um, a random but, guy once told me that that show has like the best dialogue. I've, I've heard that consistently, too. And uh, yeah, my, my one of my roommates just watched it. One of my good friends. It's like her favorite show. Um, yeah, I really would like to watch. But it's a long TV show. There is a new there's a new show coming out, though, that is. Um, Unjustified. Like, <laughs> bring, bring it back. Um <laughs> It's like kind of a sequel series, but it's because it's based because the the Justify character Raylan Givens is in several um, Elmore Leonard books, mm -hmm. and one of them is in set in Detroit, where Leonard's from, and a lot of his books are set. Even though this character is like a Kentucky kind of like Southern Western type character, um, but I guess they're doing a new show that's based on one of the Detroit books. So I don't know if it's going to be like after Justified and he goes to Detroit or whatever. But I would like to watch that. Um, but anyway, I like. Cool. I like kind of, you know, I knew like, oh, Out of Sight, oh, you know, Rum Punch is what Jackie Brown's based on, Get Shorty, like you're saying. But then I, I like, I remember he hearing that he wrote the book that 310 to Yuma is based on, and I was like, how old is this? Like the original 310 to Yuma, right? Oh, I think um, I saw that too on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. And I remember, this was a couple years ago, but I was like, is that right? Maybe I didn't know this till he <laughs> died in 2013. Um, but yeah, basically he just started getting published when he was 26 writing almost exclusively westerns so he's written a bunch of westerns that i had seen like the tall t is another good one um what's uh there's one what's it called there's one there's a paul newman one I haven't seen that one i know people like the book a lot um yeah basically he started getting westerns published in magazines when he was like 26 then did that for 20 years mostly short stories but several novels and then in the 60s he kind of became more of a you know urban crime writer the way we think of him kind of a you know noir um novelist and then eventually and his stuff like was always getting adapted but it wasn't until he had a book called glitz in the mid 80s that he became like kind of a best-selling novelist um very cool title it's about like great, casino stuff right yeah yeah all, all of his all these titles are so good um does he quickly does he have i i feel like just thinking about his transition from western to crime please tell me he has some like extremely problematic quote that's like 
because that's where the showdowns go. There's no more American West. It's on the streets of Baltimore. I haven't I haven't seen that, but I, I'm sure he does at some point. It's like how people are like, superhero movies are just the new westerns. Calm down. <laughs> that's so funny. Um there is a great quote about this though. When asked about the vivid landscapes in his westerns, Leonard told how he did his research from a magazine. Quote unquote, I subscribe to Arizona Highways. <laughs> That was really funny. It sounds um, like an in-flight magazine for truck drivers. It pretty much is. It's a really I do I have seen a lot probably just being from Arizona, um, but it's just like really pretty pictures of Arizona. <laughs> but it's funny, yeah. I mean, he is he was such a funny guy, like just in quotes and interviews. Um, like he didn't consider himself a success until his movies really started taking off. Um, so he thought that it was Get Shorty that made him famous. And after it came out in 95, he said, after writing almost anonymously for decades, I am what you might call an overnight success. Um, <laughs> but like we, I mean, we've talked about this outside of Jackie Brown. And it seems like Justified, he pretty he makes fun of most of the adaptations of his work. There's this great quote. Uh, his book, The Big Bounce, has been adapted twice. I've definitely seen the one with Owen Wilson that's terrible that came out maybe like 15 or 16 years ago. But I guess it was adapted um, in 1969 as well. And after seeing the first version, uh, Leonard declared it to be at least the second worst movie ever made. <laughs> and once he saw the one, once he saw the remake, he, he knew what the worst one was. <laughs> that is a hilarious. I don't know. Do you think it's because that, like, okay, so if you're reading like a very pulpy crime book, even if it's like a little cringe, for lack of a better term, you're still reading. So that's like why I don't like like shit on like 50 shades of gray or or like uh it's still a book yeah you're still reading a book but there's something about then watching it that maybe feels like inherently lazier like less intellectual so like it seems like I, I don't know also i think maybe seeing seeing just certain things when you see them maybe outfits or costumes or performances it just it it's not the same when you imagine it you don't imagine you you don't it's not as embarrassing like you don't imagine it as embarrassing i don't know no, absolutely. And I, well, it's also funny that he hates them because, to, I mean, it has so much more and it is very literary in its own way, but it's basically, they're basically screenplays, you know, like mm -hmm. the description is so sparse in a wonderful way and the dialogue just like sings. So like, I mean, there's this quote that I don't even, I couldn't even find words from, but it's on like Wikipedia and IMDb trivia that about him calling, reading the screenplay for Jackie Brown and calling it the best screenplay he's ever read. And it's kind of like, yeah, there's some changes, but also like, <laughs> yeah, dude, that's your book. <laughs> like, oh, you're writing is the best screenplay ever. So much hilarious. of the dialogue is like word for word. Um, While we're on this subject, what do you think? is because i've had this is a vague question but i'm still gonna ask it like what do you think constitutes good dialogue because for a while i was like it captures the way like naturalistic speaking or characters speaking like it feels like it's coming from a real person but then it's like you you i got really into that like watching like mumblecore for example because it's mostly improvised but it's still you have to it's like this is how people organically speak this is cool but then when you have like a Quentin Tarantino it's like oh this like elevates language and is awesome but then you have the other extreme which is like which is like Aaron Sorkin where it's like calm down like you know like I think he's right, like right right he thinks yeah. of everything that like a person would possibly ever say and leaves no room for them to like stew in a car later about wishing they said something different you know what I mean 
what do you think is like really effective dialogue yeah, yeah. i mean i think it's i think it's any of them you know like it just depends I, I mean i certainly think with this and tarantino it's it's that the thing that is heightened but also feels real you know more with Leonard and Tarantino so heightened but does get at like uh, I mean I know that's what people first loved about Pulp Fiction like they're just talking about things people talk about but obviously it's so heightened and there's a musicality to it um, so I think that's part of it and just having a rhythm um, you know local like maybe some sort of you know specific local color like this is how a person from there would talk and mm -hmm. I know it feels real even if it's not necessarily how I would talk, which is certainly plenty of that in Rum Punch. Um, and then I think, yeah, no, I like I like that definition as well. And then to expand upon this, I've heard this from Nick Ledger, so that's my source, so I don't know if this is true. Nick, love you, though. Um, he told me that, like, you know when people start, you go, someone goes, you go to, uh, like, when you visited Spain, right? Next thing you know, you're speaking with, like, a Spanish accent a little bit, and it's, like, cringy but ledger was telling me that that is like somehow linked to like being more empathetic and it kind of makes sense like you're really getting in the person's shoes and that's why i feel like ultimately i would defend tarantino i think there's a cringe there is a cringy element of like maybe exploitation or like wanting to be black especially when you just youtube anyone who hasn't seen it youtube quinn tarantino can't talk to black people it's really cringy he's just like literally he's like that's a fly flick like on like, an interview he's like just it's really he's totally like got a kangol hat backwards trying to be um like just something he's not but at the same time like i think it's like it's deep admiration and deep empathy for those communities especially because he grew up in the south bay so i feel like it's like i don't know i just ultimately i think that that like i don't think he's somebody who has like bad intentions and i do think he like maybe has this this false idol tree but at the same time is um i don't know like he's amazing so it's i i'll defend him yeah yeah it's like i don't think it's yeah I, it's not my place to say but it is kind of like it clearly he thinks it's coming from a place of love at the very least and also you know <laughs> like this movie i mean he made a movie starring a middle-aged black woman like that doesn't really happen you know yeah he, he, he also also you especially with I don't know. You have to give some credit and agency to the actors who choose to work with him, you know, because for the most part, like Samuel L. Jackson doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to. And he can make his own decisions. So if he deems, you know, these scripts something he wants to do, that's like, I don't know, there's a certain stamp of approval there or Jamie Foxx or whoever it may be. Um mm -hmm. Yeah, but I also, like, I, I don't know, you know? Like, I think like, Jamie Foxx is a better example because Jamie Foxx already had a big career and wasn't, like, Pulp Fiction really what got um got the juice flowing for, for Samuel Jackson. Did he have any big roles before that? I mean, yeah, you know, he had he'd been, I mean, he's barely in Goodfellas, but he had been in Jungle Fever and several things. But no, you're right, Pulp Fiction was his breakout. I guess I was thinking this movie more, but then they already had a working relationship. It's true. Um, he clearly is in, he's clearly in, I've heard him defend Tarantino as well. So I, I agree, yeah. I think you have to give agency to the people involved. I think that's a very good point. We don't want to speculate on what may or may not make them uncomfortable or whatever. It's just, I don't know, it is, it's just, it's kind of like the elf in a room a little bit. I feel like we've talked about it a good amount. He's no, he's no road doll by any means. <laughs> the other thing that I feel like, I mean, I don't know, it's, I think plenty of it's still problematic. Like you said, he clearly has an infatuation with the N-word, but it's like, compared to so many people working in Hollywood, especially, you know, being here, you can get, it's easy to get 
jaded or disillusioned by how many people who seem to be making it either come from money or come specifically from Hollywood money. It's like mm-hmm. this, this dude grew up poor in South LA. His mom was half Cherokee, like, and he made it, didn't go to finish high school or go to college, and he came up and made it without any real connections. Totally. I don't know. That's, you know, grew up poor. That's that's something there's that doesn't no, gonna, happen. <laughs> no, I agree. Like when you hear about his story and hit, I was just thinking about this, him and like like Joaquin Phoenix, for example. It's like, how did this work out for these guys? <laughs> <laughs> like, not only is Tarantino like he is an amazing filmmaker and he like, yeah, like he made it, but also he made it like it wasn't like he just got a career. Like he had a major career. He's one of the most iconic filmmakers. I read some study that was like not some studies survey i guess that like he's really the only director that people go to to see his work specifically like people go like oh that movie looks good and like it's very there's very few people obviously we're very inside because we love this stuff and you specifically like you're in the industry so people like oh i want to go see this this new claire denis movie but in general like the actual people um the 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 i saw i saw the i saw the new claire denis (laughs) real quick i saw the new claire denis movie yesterday which you did not know i did not know that i I do know you you did mention maybe there's some osmosis there but i do think like as far as like he is a lay person's are still into that are still aware of him and that actually is really rare for directors no, I, I mean, especially right now, it doesn't even, that's the thing that's gone away. That and the star system, it doesn't exist anymore, you know? Everyone loves the people who are in Marvel movies, but they only go to see their movies in droves when they're Marvel movies. Whereas, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was super expensive and was a hit. Like, granted, there are stars in it, but it was a hit because people who don't care about movies necessarily know who Tarantino is. Yet, right now, the really the only other person like that is Christopher Nolan, you know? And that's... It's mm-hmm. that's it. It's the two of them where they can make big movies and know that people are going to go see them just based on their name, um, which is sad. Um, but it's also cool that this dude, because also like yeah, his movies are violent and they're funny, but they're also really long and really talky. And it's kind of hard to believe that so many people who don't care that much about movies really like them. I don't know. It's really cool. No, I uh, complete agreement. Quick joke before I hit, give you the reins to talk about Leonard is. I think I've shared this with you before, but it's maybe my favorite my favorite Onion article after Dad suggests going to the airport 14 hours early. Um, is <laughs> is uh, it was came out in 2018 and said I also directed the film. Said Bradley Cooper to no one in particular. About <laughs> <laughs> a star is born. That's really good. <laughs> it was like I remember as a photo was so good too. It was like him just kind of sitting near some random people. <laughs> Their photo use is is always incredible. Um, God, I love the onion. Uh, (laughs) Okay, let's hear more about some Leonard. Yeah, real quick, um, just like on his writing, it seems like what's cool is a lot of more esteemed literary writers seem to really like him, particularly Martin Amos writes about him a lot. And in a review of one of his books in 95, he uh, cited Leonard's gifts of eye and ear, of timing and phrasing, that even the most indolent and snobbish masters of the mainstream must vigorously cut it, covet. Um, uh, yeah, and Stephen King has called him the great American writer. Um, his use Stephen of, King is always throwing out quotes. Every time I look about a writer, it's like, and Stephen, <laughs> it's always King's, Stephen King. It's, always it's like, true. <laughs> it's true. And he, and he seems pretty, you know, he's just certainly, Stephen King's a man of the people, it seems. He is. Um, real, real quick, God, I keep saying real quick and then having these long asides. 
Maine. He's from Maine, you know? Oh, right. I went of course. to like uh, every bookstore in Maine has a massive Stephen King collection. It's That's like they so have. Funny. They have like a horror. It feels like it's like three. If there's like Maine, then there's horror, and like the Venn diagram is like three shelves of every <laughs> Stephen, King, multiple copies of every Stephen King book. Anywho, all right. Uh, that's great. Um, <laughs> yeah, another. Um, I I had not known about this, but I um, or I guess known how to articulate it, but I guess his use of what's called free direct discourse, which is a style of third person narration, is what really stands out. Which I mean, I read this after just reading the book, but it's 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 when you, it's like kind of has some of the characteristics of third person, but with the essence of first person direct speech, in that you feel like you're you have access to whatever character's thoughts a scene is taking the point of view of, you know, um, which is something he said, like kind of as much where he said, I always write from a character's point of view that he's saying that he couldn't even begin writing a scene until he decided which character would be assigned the narrative voice, which is something that rum punch does really well. And it's really cinematic where it's cutting back and forth from different points of view. Cause I didn't remember this, but it, it really shares the movie's quality of kind of, within set pieces retelling um little pieces of narrative like starting over from a different point of view like the mall sequence or even when mm. jackie um steals max's gun that reveal which is perfectly done in the movie with the split screen it is like a suspenseful thing where you're going back and forth between points of view but it is at a remove you know um that is so interesting because that also feels very tarantino in a way too no no totally totally um yeah, really, really cool. Um, and one other Leonard thing I wanted to bang out, he uh, he wrote an essay, uh, I think in 2001, 10 Rules for Writing, that is like such a funny, grumpy thing on like clearly how to write, like how he writes simply. Um, and he goes into <laughs> Wait, more not depth. just how he writes, how Steinbeck and Hemingway also it's true, write. Right. He and took not it from, Chandler. Chandler he took it from... messes all of these things up. He took it from, yeah, Steinbeck and Hemingway. Um, and these are the 10 of them. All funny. Never open a book with weather. Just a funny one to have at number one. Like, <laughs> like to, just, just, just be mad about all the books that open with weather <laughs> to the point that that's your number one rule for writing. Number two, avoid prologues. Seems good. Three, never use a verb other than said to carry dialogue. Four. I have thoughts about all of these, so we got to go back through back okay, through them. Okay. Keep going. Never use an adverb to modify the verb said. He's really hung up on said. <laughs> Keep your exclamation points under control. Uh, use regional dialect patois sparingly, which I'm like, I don't know. Reading Rum Punch, like, dude, you're pretty good at using regional dialogue and do it a lot in this book. Um, avoid detailed descriptions of characters. Don't, okay. go into, don't go into great detail describing places and things. And ten, try try to leave out the part that readers tend to skip. That's a funny one. Um, that is a funny one, and that actually is good. It is good. It's funny because he also, with all these, he's like, obviously, unless you're good at this thing, is basically what he says after all of them. But it's just funny because it's like, like I guess he doesn't. I guess he's pretty, like we said, sparse and like to the point with a lot of these things. But I would say that his detailed descriptions of characters and places are what's so good about this book like the, yeah maybe he doesn't track it as i think a lot of times when people are good at something they don't track it as exactly craft he doesn't or get, something yeah he doesn't get too flowery with it but i'm like dude i was able to pull up google maps and know like every street corner that this book took place <laughs> in in palm beach because of your description of uh, no location. he's it is good it is good i think it's efficient 
makes sense with the Hemingway connection there. I read a, I'm rereading the sun also rises and it actually, I read this paragraph and it's really, it was really insightful for me to read because um, I'm writing a piece of science fiction right now. That's like, I'm just, I'm just beating my head against a wall because there's so much, it feels like I have so many plot points that I'm writing to. It feels like it's like, just keep, it's like, it's not as been, it hasn't been as fun to write. Cause it's not like writing for the sake of writing, which maybe right. is good, but like, it's, it's still really, it's just, it's, it's becoming, I'm just like, yeah, I'm just kind of beating my head against the wall. And then I was reading this page and Jake Barnes, the narrator in the sun also rises is like, I didn't see Brett until the following day. And then like, and then it's like, she said, like Brett says, the lady, Brett Ashley says a line of dialogue. Then he says, I didn't see her till the next day. Then she says another one. Do you know what I mean? It's like, he's yeah, skipping yeah. out all the like, and then I went and did this and did that. And then the, the sun also rose again. And then it said again, and then I got drunk and now we're, I'm seeing her again. It just went right to the next thing. Cause it was carrying like what was going on. And I was like, that's so, that is it's just like, yeah, don't overthink it. Just get it to the next thing that you want. That's so true. Did you see that this, uh, his rules, he specifically cites your favorite Hemingway short story. Uh, the Hills like white elephants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll share that one. So this is under his rule, avoid detailed description of characters. Um, in Ernest Hemingway's Hills Like White Elephants, what do the quote-unquote American and the girl with him look like? All he says is, she had taken off her hat and put it on the table. That's the only reference to a physical description in the story, and yet we see the couple and know them by their tones of voice with not one adverb in sight. So that's a good yeah. example. That is a cool example. I I feel like I hear this is just being pedantic now, but I think I hear it more than I see anything. I'm like I I can picture being in a car or a train car and going and like hearing the conversation. I don't necessarily see the couple in that short story, but I don't I guess that you don't need to. I think that's what I've realized is that you don't need to because when I write when I when I'm writing, especially when I have a first person narrator, I'm so tempted to be like, I am tall. I have. <laughs> two arms and two legs like you don't actually need to describe yourself you're characterizing like a good example is nick in the great gatsby he never describes himself you know right right right. um so it's just like in the his physical description doesn't matter he's a guy he's a dude <laughs> like he's just a he's just some guy like you know that's what i think but the 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 thing about um never always just said said it's for whatever I had a, this was funny to me. So I took my first like advanced fiction writing class in college. Like, I don't know. I just got like ripped by the professor and it was really good. It was like a very healthy ripping. Like I wrote this short story that I thought was really good. And then she just like, and it was really hard class because you had to write, you were responsible for two short stories, but you had to critique everyone else's work. So you had a critique, you had a critique do you had like four critiques do a week. And it's really hard to critique people's work. Um, and it's like she taught us how to critique. She was a really good professor. She was like just on – she was from Middlebury, but she came to UVM for one semester and just like shit on our class. And then uh, – um, but she told me, she was like, why do you keep saying – because I would have like blundered and like all this different – all these different words for said. And then she was like, just have that infused into the dialogue you're writing. And I was like – she was kind of like, why – this is not how you write for adults. And I was like, oh, my God. It's because all I've really read is Harry Potter. <laughs> and they do it like we can he's all it's how you write for children if you want and then to 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 spruce it up and jk rowling does it a bunch and i had this moment i had this it was really good for me because up until then i was like i'm smart and i'm a good writer and 
bam, am I gonna, is this going to impress people? And then I was like, oh my God, I suck. I don't have any technique or craft and I haven't read anything. So like, it was really, really humbling. It was a great critique from this professor. That was a hilarious reveal that it was all because of Harry Potter. <laughs> it was all, and it was all because of Harry Potter. And I know people, I have a good friend who also loves Harry Potter, but I've like, you know, I've moved on to other, you know, books because that's, there are many other books. Right, right. And then I saw my friend, he was just talking about how he re was rereading it. And then I was kind of like, you're aware that there's like other books out there now right and then he, he looked at me like i slapped him in the face and i was like then i kind of had to quickly be like but i love very i'm so into it like you had to backpedal right yeah i did backpedal pretty hard anyway um, um hog in the airtime once more let's hear it let's hear some more yeah that, i mean that's not too much more it is funny though with the said thing i feel like that it's also like yeah so many of your books are ready-made screenplays you know obviously in a screenplay you can have parentheticals but it's just dialogue you know it's just said this he did uh i didn't realize this he did write the adaptations of like eight of his books mostly in movies that i've never heard much of outside of miss mr majestic um so he was a screenwriter too in addition to that he also wrote a tv movie haven't even looked into it and won't refuse to called high noon 2 which i'm like <laughs> is that a just like an imagined 80s sequel to the movie high noon i assume um, but I thought that was God, a funny, so. like, lone original screenplay credit. Um, <laughs> the other thing about him is he, you know, he pretty much lived in Detroit his whole life outside of Detroit, was married three times and just was always in, uh, what's it called? I have it right here. Hold on. Bloomfield Township, um, a northern suburb of Detroit, you know. I don't know if he ever actually lived in Florida. A lot, I mean, a lot of his books take place in in Detroit, but then, you know, like this one, a lot of them in Florida as well. Um, he seems like he's a man who's into timeshares. He probably <laughs> he probably had a timeshare in Florida, and that's he where he would go. He also just seems like an like a dude. I mean, he wrote basically like a book a year, so he was probably just at home writing all day, you know, in his suburban home. Which hey, good for him. Yeah, I don't. It just it's 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 really. I think it just comes down to I don't. This is a huge generalization, but I'm curious your thoughts. It feels like there's two schools of thought with writing in a way. It's like. And I don't know if this is explicitly stated anywhere, but it's how I think about it. It's like people who write books that are heavily influenced by genre. So it's like you can read, like, for example, let's if we if we take the genre, like a crime genre, and you just read, it's almost like obviously there's a, a very human element, but it's kind of like when they teach computers to read all the like you, they they had a, the computer watch uh, like a hundred oh, and then you know an ai spits yeah. out yeah, yeah yeah and it's kind of like that and then there's there's some blending there's some good writers take what they're what's going on in their life and infuse it into that and then there's other people who go out and like try to live life i feel like and then use they heavily pull from their own life and i feel like i like writing that is like kind of in between both of those worlds um, it feels like maybe he's more of the the first thing than the than the sec the next thing and and that's why it's like his books are really entertaining but for me I view them maybe derogatorily for lack of a better word like under the umbrella of genre if that makes sense sure totally I mean it's interesting because there's so much stuff even in reading Rump Hunter like this all feels very real like did he know criminals was it just strictly research criminals and like cops and the ATF and how all these things work. Um, it's really interesting. Um, maybe he was a crook too. 
who knows? <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, a lot of people have, now I'm just, now I'm like realizing it's probably ignorant because there's a lot of people who do research and, you know, talk to people who are involved in those things. And there could, there could be a, he could be a heavy researcher too. Who knows? Who knows? RIP, Mr. Leonard. Um, RIP. Yeah, that, that's, uh, let's see. Pretty much I got all I got an old Elmore. Old Elmore Leonard. Okay, Tanner, I'm going to go pee real quick and then we'll cut this out of the podcast. And then, um, one, one, uh, how, when, what should we, where should we move forward from here? We, I mean, we could, you could, like, you can go into Tarantino. I mean, we know about Tarantino. We've talked about him some, or we could just go right into the movie and the differences and what we, you know, I kind of, yeah, I kind of like, we think we should just go right into it and then talk about Tarantino because kind of what we've been doing before. Yeah, I I like it. It'll come out of it. Yeah. And everyone knows anyway. Cool. BRB. Okay. Have a good pee. Thank you. I'm going to mute. And I'm back, baby. Woo. Okay, so I feel like we have a good uh, discussion here of Leonard. Um, Tanner's got some great info. I love just trying to derail it the whole time and make it about myself. Uh, now we're talking about Jackie Brown. So, Tanner, where's a good place to start for this? I feel like we should start with the opening credits because we, because I know you have a, a little anecdote that you heard about PTA that I'd love to shoehorn right in here. Oh, what's Oh, just them looking similar? I thought you said that you'd heard in an interview that Paul Thomas Anderson was inspired by the uh, typography in Jackie Brown and used it in inherent vice, like uh, that idea for how he did the opening. Credits. I, I have not heard that. However, I have, he did. I know when inherent vice came out, um, there was like an event, it premiered at the New York film festival. And there was like an event where Paul Thomas Anderson presented like five movies or clips from five movies that inspired uh, Jackie Brown. And he did include a clip from inherent vice. I believe it's the great scene when Jackie and Max have coffee in her apartment, um, which does the. Um, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Especially yeah. with the scene when he when he sees the baby's photo, like mm-hmm. totally. Um, but I mean, I just knew that it, he said it was an influence generally, and then the past few times I've watched Jackie Brown, it's like, oh, the the way the title comes over their faces, like obviously in Inherent Vice, it's more of the 70s or the, you know, the neon font and it has, um, it's transparent in the middle. But it, the way, it, I feel like it's untraditional for a title to go over a character's face and hold there in that same way. And they look pretty similar. So I take that. And, and it's, I mean, it's cool that, because Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino are, are contemporaries and, you know, by all accounts, friends. It's, it's. I feel like it's rare to be like my buddy influenced me, but I also it is rare. Yeah, it's cool because it's also like 
and maybe I'd read something to this effect. He's Tarantino. So it's kind of like almost, uh, to me, it's like, you know, since I'm on your turf, why don't I like pay some respect, you know, to your South Bay movie? Um, oh, interesting. Well, I, I feel like, cool. yeah, but at the same time, I mean, I agree that it's funny though. To just, I'm picturing the turf dispute of like, how many people moved to LA when PTA is from the Valley and then he's from the South. <laughs> right, like right, right. Like, it's like, that's your standard of someone uh, being a carpet bagger. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but the, uh, God, I mean, the opening, t- the, the whole idea taken from the graduate um, of the moving walkway in LAX, but with that great fucking, I mean, it's, it's great because like in the book, obviously she's named jackie burke and she's white those are big differences and while she is a main character in the book she doesn't come in for like 40 pages but the way this movie makes it from her point of view by having the opening credits and the very end with her alone and it makes it her movie and she's a titular character and i think that's so smart because otherwise you know her plot wouldn't start until a ways in but having the great opening credit scene of showing her at work doing what she does with un uh, across 110th Street, which is a black exploitation movie, not starring Pam Greer, but it's a 70s New York movie. That's what that song's from. Kind of like being like, this is a Pam Greer movie right from the start. Um, really effective. Yeah, I love that song's really, really great. I was like grooving to it and I was pumped that they kept the whole song in it and then they do it at the end of the movie with it as well. Um, and then I was just like listening to the lyrics and I was like, what does that mean? Like, don't cross 110th street. I'm like, is that where it starts to get dicey or something? Like, is that, is, cause it's, I've heard that before in New York. It's like, once you get into the hundreds, it can get a little, little dicey there. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's Harlem. Um, that's basically my sister lives on a hundredth street in East Harlem and you go up a little further and that in the seventies was, I mean, it is Harlem now, Harlem, not necessarily, you know, as rough an area as I think it used to be not rough either. I mean, but that was Harlem in the seventies in that movie, um was set saw that movie at the new beverly of course oh awesome wait like what it not when it came out originally no 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 it's a 70s black exploitation movie like uh i don't know two or three years ago oh cool sorry i was confused for a second i thought you were talking about jackie brown but oh, wait because i feel like this is a good place to start to in addition to the typography i feel like this is a pretty personal film for you in the same way that you describe maybe pta being on his turf um this was your turf this was your turf <laughs> Kind of. Yeah, it is really personal. It's like, so this movie set in the South Bay, which is, it's so cool. Tarantino, you know, born in Tennessee, but grew up predominantly in Torrance and Harbor City, and then later famously worked at the video rental store Video Archives in Manhattan Beach. Um, I was born in Torrance and grew up in Redondo Beach in this same area, moved away at a young age in 1998 when this movie came out so to me i watched this movie and it is the exact memory of how i remember this area and time like preserved in amber like everything felt like this my parents shitty friends i remember (laughs) they all seem like these characters and that's it's so cool because it's like you read the book and it's in palm beach and west palm beach which are kind of distant beachy suburbs of miami that are kind of seedy and that's exactly what the south bay feels like in relation to la and the way tarantino took this book and put it on his own turf so specifically with every specific location it just feels like such a respectful adaptation in that way that he's making it authentic by putting it in his home um yeah it's my 
favorite aspect of the movie because his other movie his other la movies pulp fiction and reservoir dogs are set in la and i you know there are mentions of certain areas and he does like have an affinity for south la and those they at least come up you know mm-hmm. like john travolta's from redondo beach in pulp fiction harvey Keitel says you know move out of the sticks um <laughs> i uh, see a cab <laughs> <laughs> in your future um in reservoir dogs there are a bunch of reference there's a reference to palace verdes um it, but this is the one that feels like in a very plain kind of almost bland way set in the real places in the south bay and south la where these people would live how they would behave the del Alma mall was my mall when i was a kid <laughs> where we'd go to see movies you know the fucking melanie's apartment not actually in Hermosa Beach. You can tell because the strand is far enough out. That's either Dockweiler or Playa del Rey. Because in Hermosa, the boardwalk is right on the houses. Oh, okay. Um, that makes sense. I've been to Hermosa it, and, and uh, Playa. It does seem more Playa now that you say that. Yeah, but the apartment feels so so 90s and so Hermosa Beach. God, my, <laughs> my parents had a single friend named Dave Rainey. Who they referred to as Rain Dog, who was like a real handsome guy and who had a place in Hermosa Beach. And we'd go over there and he'd always have I remember my mom, my mom can really insult someone's appearance and referred to one of his girlfriends as a Barbie type in like a mean way because she was, I don't know, good looking and blonde. But this in guy no 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 no. but this guy currently grows weed in humboldt county and surely was like a cokehead with just all these different women in his life even though he was probably in his late 30s uh living in hermosa beach uh all these people all these things it's just exactly what it looked and felt like and you know when you get in the right pockets of the south bay now it still feels like that it's a shame the parts that have been kind of like steel and glass or like you know not even gentrified because yes gentrified but also just made to look how nice places are supposed to look now but you still take a turn onto sepulveda or crenshaw or something you're like oh still looks just like that there's a strip mall probably some some shady stuff going on over there the light is beautiful i love it here um and yeah i mean the, like. the south bay is awesome and it does have it does feel like and again i was not um, it's not a nostalgic place for me. Well, I guess nowadays because I've I've moved from LA. Right. But my bro- my brother did live in Redondo for a, like a year and a half, so I was going down there a lot. Um, but I do think it it does seem like it has. There is like Redondo, for example, is like pretty industrial, you know, because there's that what's that building? Do you know what I'm talking about? I I don't know what you're talking about. Are you talking there about is, the big it, smokestack? Yeah, it's like it looks like it's almost like an oil rig or something. Like there's a yeah, big yeah. thing. Um, and there's parts of it that feels like they're there. It have lost kind of the charm of it. And they're trying to do what you're saying, like make it more, um, kind of round out the edges a bit for lack of a better term. Um, and it kind of, it seems like, yeah, it seems like maybe that's a little bit of a shame. I know one thing that bothers me. I've ranted to you about is Hermosa beach. No, they, they do not accept credit cards or cards in their parking. And then all the places are very, the laundromats nearby are like hawkish because everyone comes in to steal the cord to use the it's so funny yeah that's something that i think they did recently change this at least in redondo beach i was there a week or two ago and it was the first time i've been there where near the beach they had um debit card meters but yeah there there are certain ways where it does hold on to the past uh 
Yeah, they're interesting places because they're only gotten wealthier by the beach, but they're still close to South L.A. They're still close to all this industry in both like, you know, Harbor City, where Tarantino's from and getting closer to Long Beach. It's all part of the same world. And there's definitely a clash there because like, I don't know, some of the wealthier people there are slightly more conservative than they are in, you know, the rest of greater L.A. And it's not connected to Hollywood. And it's really interesting. Like my cousin worked as a bartender at this uh this bar in redondo beach for like 12 years and just the people that were regulars there it's like who are you you made money somehow and came out here to chill and be in shorts all day which is awesome (laughs) but you also kind of seem like a piece of shit and maybe racist uh and so many people melanie oh my god everyone my cousin has introduced me to who was like a 38 year old bartender which is awesome cool job but all of her coworkers from the south bay look and feel exactly like melanie in this movie yeah yeah she's a great character i feel like she we should talk about her and we should talk a little bit about about the the plot and lewis and all that stuff and maybe the changes from the book but just briefly is like i have to say it she's very attractive can't help but to feel it um but then i uh, did you see i know she's like quit acting then i was just googling because i was like i was wondering about um her relationship to jane fonda did you see that photo though do you know what i'm talking about it's yeah. it's pretty staggering just that we don't have to like be offensive about like i'm not gonna like <laughs> critique her appearance it's not a nice thing to do but it is just staggering You're like oh hold, like yeah you that's just it, it was not what i was expecting i assumed right. she was still in the industry and still making work and all that stuff i didn't really realize it either because she didn't do that much work but she's you know terrific in everything she's in and yes she married danny elfman i think probably even before this movie um who obviously is a very successful um, composer and musician. Um, and then I think maybe got in a car accident and kind of quit acting and just became a mom. But yeah, there were pictures recently of her just looking like a 50 year old mom, which more power to you. That's awesome. But kind of unrecognizable. Yeah. It, it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, when David Letterman just started growing a beard, you know, when he stopped <laughs> yes. like, and all of a sudden this pictures emerged of him just like walking and it's like, who is that? This looks like it was someone who was famous at one point, and you're like staring at the face, and then you're like, oh my god, it's David Letterman. It's David Letterman. Uh, she's but, yeah, she's very attractive in this, but also, I don't know. She not that it lessens her attractiveness at all, but she does feel like beach worn in a weird way, or kind mm-hmm. of you know, there are some scenes where she see, seems less made up. Just like in the book, she's always in her cutoffs. Um, you know, well, even it, her, she her aging is highlighted, even though she's still so young and vibrant. She's like in her early 30s instead of being the super young, hot, whatever he calls her. Still my surfer girl, what Ardell says. Yeah, but um, she's not surfing. That's the thing that I think is interesting is that he's like, you can kind of ascribe a whole backstory to her because of like the fact that she's hanging out with Ordell and he calls her a surfer girl and all she does is like smoke weed. And just sits on the couch and she even says her only ambition is to smoke weed and watch TV. So it is kind of, you can see that she, life has taken a turn for her as well. It's like all these characters, what connects them, it seems like is that life is taken. Like, I don't know, except Ordell seems like he's like, maybe, I don't know. He's, he's He's, not, he's really the one person who's where he's trying to be (laughs) or is like, does have ambition where everyone else is kind of like, I'm this old. How did I end up here? Every single other character. Um, Mm -hmm. Ordell and maybe I guess Keaton's character are both, you know, striving for something and still rising up to them at least. That is a good point. Yeah, because then Max says about uh, – he's like, oh, it sounds like he just is young and enjoys being a cop. 
right when Jackie's him. paranoid about him maybe trying to steal the money as well, which is also very revealing for like her psychology. It's like, well, are you are you gonna steal the money? <laughs> so right, why other right. would you say that? Oh, uh, real uh, quick, uh, one last thing I didn't realize. Um, <laughs> even when reading the book, I didn't realize this. So this is a sequel, kind of, to an Elmore Leonard novel called The Switch, which is in the book. It goes in the book Rum Punch. It goes more into detail about Ordell um, and Lewis's background with Melanie and how they met her, and it was like a kidnapping plot, and she was dating. She was like the mistress of the husband of the woman they were kidnapping. They were trying to extort a guy by kidnapping his wife, and she was his mistress. And they like things went bad fast, and then she ended up kind of like going with Ordell and Lewis, um, which is how she met them. And um, so not that's but and I thought that was just backstory in Rum Punch. Turns out it was a book he had written like ten years earlier called The Switch, and supposedly. Oh, Maybe even more than 10 years earlier, because supposedly this could be apocryphal or like Tarantino's own myth making. But he stole a copy of the book, The Switch, when he was like 15. Um, but if that's true, that's really cool that he was into that book. And then however many years later, once he's like the, you know, the king of independent Hollywood is like, I'm going to make the sequel to the book I stole as a kid. Um, but a that funny cool. thing is apparently the movie, I haven't seen it, apparently the movie Ruthless People, which came out after the book The Switch, has basically the same exact plot, like same kind of kidnapping setup, even though it's not an adaptation. And in the book, in Rum Punch, I think it's Lewis, when you're kind of in his head, mentions that they saw that movie that used the same plot as their kidnapping, which <laughs> pissed him off. And it's such a funny way to address it, like because the movie did rip off the book, and in the sequel, he's like, yeah, they used the same idea we used. <laughs> it's like when Louie has Dane Cook on in the show to talk about. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, but I'll just say there's awesome. more more of a background with Melanie, and like he, she and Lewis have more of a background. Whereas in this, you think they're kind of just met until she's like, "When did I see you last?" And you're like, yeah, people know each other. I think there's. I'm curious what your thoughts about this. I it, maybe I was planning on sharing this at the end, but I guess it's it's coming to me now, so I'm gonna go for it. So like this movie is great. I do really like it. The pace is always what's kind of kept me at arm's length a bit, you know. Like um other films of Tarantino, I'm like in and I'm really I feel really invited in. And this one, it's like at the beginning I do the 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 opening sequence and the typography and everything. It's like amazing. I'm like hell yeah, let's go. Like I'm ready for it. And then it. I'm like, this time it's going to kind of be different. And then ultimately after 15, 20 minutes, I kind of start zoning out. And then when the plot starts happening, I'm like back into it. Then when Lewis kills Melanie, I'm like really into it. I'm like ripped to the end, even, even though I've seen it a few times. I don't know about if this film's capacity to be like a hangout film. It feels like maybe that it is cool that we're hanging out with these characters, like you said, that you remember seeing from your youth and that they're kind of these seedy, nefarious people dealing with these problems of aging. And a lot of that's understated and beneath the surface. So I, I can appreciate that. But I think it comes at the cost of, of a streamlined narrative that I don't ultimately think – I think it hurts the film a little bit. For, for me personally, I think getting some more of that exposition somehow might make Melanie fleshed out a little bit more. She's already a great character. I think she's kind of the key to the, the movie in a way because then when Lewis kills her and all that stuff we can get into um, – it's just it's a kind of like an outlier in a way same with jackie and there's some parallels there but for me i'm like i think it kind of hurts the the movie by by uh what i've what i've said what do you think of that that's interesting i mean i mean i think i did feel that with the first time i saw this i was like that was pretty good kind of slow i don't know now it's like 
I, it's such a it is so personal for me but like i mean it's my favorite movie of his not to spoil that but like <laughs> and like i don't know the slowness of it is is now just something i also like to luxuriate in all this with these people but i also totally get that not necessarily working or coming across and the melanie thing it's interesting because it another thing in the book <laughs> there's an entire nazi subplot excised oh yeah which is, That's which is the, funny it's how the film or book opens right it's it like opens being like... with them where Ordell like showing Lewis some Nazis. Like yeah. they go to they go to a parade and be like, "Those but are don't the talk Nazis about the weather. Over there. Do yeah, not yeah. talk about the weather at the uh, Nazi parade." Um, <laughs> and then there's it's just kind of hanging in the background, but you know they're gonna try to rip off these Nazis, and they go do it to steal these guns from these skinheads. And Melanie ends up killing the dude because Lewis is too afraid to, and she's trying to get really trying to get Lewis to like turn on Ordell. Um, which is in the movie too, but you know she has less of an active hand in that. She doesn't murk anyone. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's. I think it's, it's more of a. Oh, go ahead. I, I mean, I think it's it's funny because it's like, oh, a Nazi shootout. Like <laughs> these are things that we know Tarantino is into, and it feels like such a conscious choice to make. I mean, this is his gentlest movie. It's not very violent. You know, even when Lewis mm-hmm. kills Melanie, we it's kind of framed off screen. Um, there's that killing some... is really effective as well. It feels very, it's really horrifying and it feels very like real. And totally, it's stripped down in a way that we don't, it's the, at odds completely with Tarantino's like asceticization of violence, wherever they say. I mean, it's so, that's, yeah, that's why I love this movie. And it's so interesting, especially coming off of Pulp Fiction, because you can feel him being like, I've got this juice. I'm going to make the movie I want to make now while I can because it's such a it's all toned down from Pulp Fiction. It's an adaptation instead of an original script. It's less violent. It's almost like he knows what masses love about his movies. And he's like, I'm going to take that, you know, all the energy I have right now and do the thing that I need to do, even though maybe people won't be as into it. Um, mm-hmm. Well, no, I, I can. I think that's admirable. And I think I don't know, maybe just because I maybe I'm not as evolved or something but i'm like there is so much meat on this story and with character to have it be more of this of the thing that people love about tarantino and he like very quickly got back to that so it is interesting that it stands out and is different but ultimately i'm like i don't i don't know if it it's like it feels like he kind of like had a like took an elmore leonard novel and the back ended it with all that same stuff in the beginning he kind of tried to make more like dazed and confused or something in a way because i know he like loves that movie uh, and it is a great movie. And ultimately, Jackie Brown is very good. I think I'm just like douchily wishing that it was maybe just more of the the Nazi shootout with and sure, Melanie. Sure. We get more of 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 that arc in there because I thought in the book that that is that is cool. And it is a little bit weird in the book at the same time. Like it is like it's very easy to justify stealing guns when it's like Nazis, you know? Right, right. It is <laughs> but, a little odd. But again, we things we know Tarantino's into. Yeah, it's interesting because I also feel like that gives the movie, without that scene in the movie, um, the build to Lewis killing her is almost, it's so much more on Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's him, her annoying him is so funny. Uh, the slow build to it but when he kills her you're like this is just a frustrated misogynist whereas in the other one it's like that is the case in the book but it's also like yeah she killed someone like she's crazy too but in this she's like yeah i mean she's shitty she does make fun of him but like no she didn't she shouldn't have 
you know this woman was barely mixed up in this um no exactly it feels so it's so like it's just confusing and then his it's so darkly funny when he's trying to explain it to adele because there's no real reason why he did it you know and he's just trying to like he's just crazy terrible like terrible guy and it's (laughs) that's a great part in the book i was surprised to find that that whole scene uh leonard describes uh lewis as being like a man who's trying to delay getting to (laughs) saying what he did as much as possible and then the movie when he's like talking slowly telling him that he saw max cherry he's like yeah you know i didn't think anything of it well you know what no i did i did wonder what he was doing there (laughs) and then ordell's like are you gonna tell me who you saw (laughs) i know and then he kills he kills lewis that one was like a little that's also jarring because it's like that was also stupid and then i had the moment of like in my head where he says like my ass might be dumb but i'm not a dumb ass and it's like no you are though (laughs) like i mean yeah yeah, that's what's so interesting is he's so thoughtful he's not thoughtful he's he's so considered in his actions or adele but he's also incredibly cocky you're like like when he kills beaumont you're like yeah man they're gonna know it was you and all these people will um but the way he I love the the slow zoom in on Ordell's face before he kills Lewis, like clearly thinking it through. I guess that's when he realizes it was Jackie, but he's so thoughtful. But by that point, he's fucked himself so many times. And then it's funny you say that because I found that line, my ass may be dumb, but I ain't no dumbass, is such a like, oh, this dude now is falling apart, but thinks he's still a Tarantino character. And these <laughs> are like bad versions of those cool lines. There's that and then in the previous scene i think or the next scene when max comes to visit him and he says like he's like max says something like i thought you were asleep and he's like you're gonna be asleep asleep forever and it's just like such, <laughs> such a bad threat it is so bad. You're like oh this dude is he's lost it um he's not dude, as he's... cool as he thinks he is no it's i also- mean it's got a braided soul patch i think that's oh all you God. need to know it's so hard to look at even it's it like is. really it's also cool because it's like it's both that in the way this movie is kind of like a <laughs> this is stupid, but there's a great Kanye line on Jesus, uh, which I think refers to Jesus's place as coming after Kanye's most beloved, like and critically acclaimed album, uh, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy. And on Jesus, he says, as soon as they like you, make them unlike you. Um, and that's kind of what I how I see this movie as like uh, you love Pulp Fiction, kind of like fuck you a little bit. But Samuel oh, Jackson specifically, you know, he's Jules, and yeah, Jules is like a killer and a criminal, but he's so lovable and likable. And in this one, Ordell is just like totally vapid, kind of pure evil in a weird way. Um, well, he's and it's more a cool turn. To me, it's not so much that he's evil. Like, he's obviously not a good guy, but um, I think it's more like it's like he's he's someone who's like he can't separate there's there's a there's a a church and state are mixed here with his business with his money right he can't get he can't every move he makes and this is really good writing on leonard and tarantino is like he's so clearly like panicking because he only he needs to get his money back and like to me it was like it's obviously easy to make this call having seen the movie a few times it's like okay if you want your money back you have max chair at your house and a gun okay you take him hostage and you make you say you're gonna kill him until jackie brings it you don't go in like he's just gullible like he's just so like he doesn't have he's like all testosterone in a way but at the same time it's more like no he just wants his money and he's like panicking yeah yeah and 
and he also think like like Melanie says he thinks he's a lot smarter than he is, which that's a great moment for her as a character where you're like kind of like, oh yeah, she's a you know ditzy stoner beach girl, but she's like he's an idiot. Like she knows, you know. Mm-hmm. And I like how all these people are kind of like a level down from the almost like myth. Like sure, Pulp Fiction is like a what are the the side characters like, but it is still like kind of mythic gangsterism. Mm-hmm. And in this one, everyone's like kind of down to reality you know um i i agree i think though in that way i think something that is a little bit dropped from that's in the book that is dropped from the movie is like ordell's really trying to impress lewis the whole time and you can kind of you definitely see at the beginning right with the chicks with guns which is also hilarious i was wondering do you think that tarantino produced that that, or do you think that i had the same question i'd love to know because it's so funny it is really funny and all the actresses look almost familiar you're like were you (laughs) in something they're all so buff yeah Uh, it's just but, great um, opening of the movie because that doesn't come till halfway through the movie either mm-hmm. but it's such a perfect introduction to those characters it, it is and i think i think something that could have been played up a little bit and i know i'm just handing out critiques now and i do like this movie but um i think that that character dynamic is really interesting and funny that like ordell is trying to trying to um i think i thought in the book did ordell go to prison he had done one stint like years ago i thought yeah it was like, not Lewis in a long was, time yeah, Lewis was like a career criminal and he was trying to impress him because Lewis was actually like hard and evil. And then he comes to realize like Lewis is like incompetent and a dumbass. Um Yeah, it's it's more in the book, it's it's kind of a little more like that than the movie, but it's it's more like he knows he can control Lewis. And mm-hmm. that Ordell hasn't been to prison recently because he's like a little smarter than these people. Mm-hmm. Um that makes sense. But then he I is did... still disappointed in Lewis. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. That that is more that is more the real that is more like a real person. Uh, you know, that's what real people do. Someone who's like manipulating somebody else who's who's uh maybe not as intelligent. But I just think that's interesting of like trying to impress someone and then realizing that they're a dumbass. Right, right. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, let's well, let's get into this aspect. Um De Niro just incredible so, so funny, but also it's so deeply sad and like I <laughs> I should get too personal. Like I've known a few people who come out of prison, uh, and only for a little bit. It is exactly like this dude. It's uncanny how broken oh. they seem. That's Just it. like I'm laughing, but uh, in all seriousness. Wow. I mean, I haven't. I've, I've only known a few people. White collar crime. It's very different. You can right, kind right. of get okay. plugged right back into your life. <laughs> to, to, to be clear, my 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 dad went to prison. Not even for that long. Like several times, and nothing. You know, not for anything crazy like this. I don't really know what the place was like. If it was as hard as wherever Lewis is supposed to go to, but I just remember picking him up and going like out to, out to breakfast to a bagel restaurant called Chompies because uh, he loved <laughs> Chompies, and then him just kind of sitting there and like he didn't seem upset or happy. But it was – and, like, a few months later, he seemed like himself again. But it's just exactly like this. And there are so many ways – the book gets at this well in hilarious ways. But in the movie, there are things that aren't in the book. Like, even in that first scene when Melanie asks him how long he's been out and he, like, holds up a five. Oh, it's And then so it's like, funny. wait, then switches it to four, four days. There's so many great details in the way – like when Ordell is explaining to him the guns and it's it sets up their dynamic so well. But there that two shot, Ordell is the only one talking for what feels like five minutes. 
minutes while De Niro's <laughs> just staring straight ahead. No, it's an amazing, uh, quietly brilliant performance. It's like there's yeah, the the thing there. He holds up the four or the five, and um, he does that again too. I forget. He says something else, and he does he does some sort of hand gesture every time. It's like it's just I love that when you're like it kind of reminds me of like a, a really good improv scene with not to compare one of the best actors ever to an improv scene, but like, it's like when someone pulls focus back, you know, it's like, if there's multiple, it's really hard to do improv with more than two people on stage, honestly. So you kind of have to like give and take. And then when someone has focus again and you see that they're still in character, it's very funny. So it's like De Niro mm. feels like he's like, kind of just, he's basically like living furniture. Like <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and totally. then randomly the camera's back on him. And he does something that feels so within like a real character. It's it's really really amusing. It's very good. It's so funny. And like, okay, the other one that I remembered, uh, oh God, um, is when he's just holding the phone, not even <laughs> listening. Oh yeah, he's so stoned and he's not responding. It's so funny. God, um, fuck, man, yeah, he's he's really really funny. I heard, I I thought I heard an anecdote. I'm pretty sure this is this is true. I I, I have listened to uh, a lot of YouTube uh, clips of Tarantino talking about this movie. He was on our on our boy Char- Charlie Rose uh, talking about. It's so funny though because he is he talks in this interview how he went from boy to man because of like a woman he was seeing and like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and then that now he's in kind of like he's ready to be an adult and have this career and he has this really adult movie and he's just dressed very differently and it's a completely different vibe it's like very buttoned up but i guess he wanted de niro to play lewis and he knew that de niro de niro said like oh i've I've, i'm interested in playing lewis and he knew that de niro was going to ask him what his shoes were because i guess he this was kind of de niro's litmus test for uh that's such a funny kind of yeah dumb, like <laughs> it is i think it's kind of like an actor you just know being the like, character about, do yeah. you know the character but tarantino was expecting it and tarantino tarantino is obsessed with his character so he was like oh yeah he's wearing these crappy shoes because he just got out of prison like they're kind of back they're like his old civilian shoes for like four years ago or etc cetera, etc cetera. and de niro was like all right well i'll, 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 I'll do the movie that's great all the all the wardrobes are great in this movie but his clothes in particular are hilarious the other ones that are so funny and it's a hilarious performance too but michael keaton's whole wardrobe oh my god there's like one of the earlier scenes where he has Jackie in his interview room and every he's wearing a leather jacket and every time he moves it makes the loudest noise possible <laughs> and it's just like this dude thinks he's so cool. The one uh this is another thing that inherit vice feels like it takes from this all the great crossfades in this movie. There's mm-hmm. the one where it goes from a shot of Jackie's face like looking ahead maybe in that that red lounge room to uh, and it crossfades to uh, Michael Keaton strutting down the hallway, <laughs> like into Jackie's head. He's yeah. Uh, there's a part like where he like he like grabs his junk and adjusts, and then he like sits oh I did his, see like, that yeah. up on the table, <laughs> and then the best, the most incredible part of, of his character is that in the final scene. <laughs> When he shoots the bad guy they've like been trying to get, saves Jackie Brown, he's wearing socks and sandals. <laughs> I did not notice that. I did not it's notice that. So funny. He is really I think the other guy, I like him more though. Varga, he's he's also hilarious. He's he didn't say say you could smoke. He didn't ask permission to permission to smoke in here. And she's like, Can I have permission to smoke? And he's like, No, you may not. <laughs> This he's so going. funny he's got a great erica the one other hilarious scene with the three of them that's not in the book at all is when they're arguing over the color of the shopping bag 
<laughs> like, oh yeah, yeah. He's that writing it really down. Funny. He's like, fine. The bag is white with purple lettering and a very attractive woman on it. Uh, just like the little <laughs> things. It's that's yeah. That's um. Sorry, I feel like I'm talking a ton but like no i'm still talking way more so keep i want to hear more from tanner this is tanner's day in the sun as we know (laughs) one of the things i mean i guess you could say this about all of his movies but so many of his movies now you know outside of well okay i was gonna say since this movie he's only made period pieces not true kill bills aren't period pieces but they're more heightened not in the real world death proof i guess is also a contemporary film but he luxuriates in the details of the world so much which makes sense in a period piece but in this it's like so everyday and quotidian and it almost to me feels like a period piece set in 1998 which obviously Mm -hmm. it's not it was a contemporary movie but you watch it and you're almost like how did he know that these are the things that would be interesting or funny about this time whatever 24 years later like there's there's so many great inserts generally which is may just be a stylistic thing but it feels like it's honing in on the details of everyday life like the insert of her her clock the numbers turning over to 11 mm, yeah or like the the attention paid to the funny of like the her playing back her voicemails or even great moment that i can't even understand why it like hits my brain in a way that's hilarious but when samuel L. jackson describes the noise that his car will make when it opens and he goes oh and it immediately makes the noise and then it makes the exact same noise it feels like it's like commenting on this time but that was the time uh yeah i don't know i find it really moving also with like how the movie's so much about aging um which is also i mean the book is too but it's so interesting that this dude was pretty young and he made this I mean, like you're saying, he was clearly trying to be mature, as I'm sure he mm-hmm. would say. Um, a mature auteur. A mature auteur. No, I think it's really effective because it's like there's this idea of becoming. We're always becoming. And it means like we're not quite there yet. And we, we're always like striving to be something else than what we're, we're currently at. And it's like pretty bad, I think, especially if you're for the average Joe Schmo. But especially I think it's it's really weird when you're – rich and famous because i think you're like i am at why am i not content with what i have you know and i think there's that's tapped it's done really really well because i think even younger people relate to that but then this idea of of that idea of becoming combined with aging you know what i mean it's like jackie's the the great coffee scene where she's says she always feels like she's starting over and i often feel that way as well i'm like i've changed careers a lot in my 20s and i've had kids and i've moved and all that stuff so it's like you just when you always feel like you're starting over starting from square one and then coming to term like having a character being like okay actually like no fuck that you know and that's kind of the emotional state of her like I think it's it is really really powerful when you see other people fighting against that or 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 not like being able to or getting uh, steamrolled by that in a way. I think it makes it makes it a very emotional movie. I think it's easy to make it sentimental and it isn't. Like it's yeah. very straightforward. Totally, yeah, and I mean that. Like even in addition to obviously, there's the one great scene where they're having coffee, where that simple two shot of them that then goes into individual profile close ups. Those are some of it's just so simple the composition, but it's, they're so beautiful. Um, but obviously they discuss that in that scene, and he talks about you know his hair thinning. The great line about this is also from the book how when he looks at looks in the mirror, I still see myself. Um, it's still me <laughs> I'm looking at or whatever. 
Oh, that's good. But then it is a good line. Some other like just stylistic choices that highlight that something I've I've like become obsessed about that I've never seen in anything else in the hilarious scene before Lewis and Melanie have sex when she says "wanna fuck." Another <laughs> another detail when she's making a metric smoothie. I'm like, this feels like it's a period piece making fun of the late nineties. Metrics though, they're they're they have bars though, right? I feel like I've had a that, metrics it's, bar. A it's like a whole brand. Bar. Yeah, 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 yeah. They have the meal replacement bars, but it also feels so in line with that like beach workout culture like that probably (laughs) isn't even good for you but um there's the whole bit where she's well there's so much attention paid to like the people's photos on their on their household walls like that's another interesting Mm -hmm. part when when max is in jackie's apartment and he's like just struck by her family photos it's just really beautiful but then in the lewis and melanie scene he sees the photo of her in japan which is not from the book totally great dialogue where she's just talking about how this the guy was cut out that she lived with but they didn't even talk to each other that much and then when she goes that's me and that's japan and it's just the blank space next to her um but then when lewis has a picture of her when she's 14 and you go into the you know the close-up mm. the insert of the photo and she's talking to him and then it cross fades to her now older across the room never seen that it's so moving and just like the point of the movie you know like aging in a mm-hmm. shot uh totally so cool and like the way it gets that, in characters head oh yeah well that's in, that's an interesting point because i i now I've, i'm persuaded because i feel like i had the opposite opinion in a way not that i'd, I'd liked that uh, did, uh but um i felt like this is movie is like the split screens and 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 uh moves like that and the clock it's kind of like to me it felt the clock is interesting as well and i liked that edit it felt like the edits in this and the way it was set up was like it wasn't trying to be stylistically innovative. Like it mm-hmm. felt like it was just trying to use all the th- tools that people are already aware of. So it's interesting that you th- feel like he's using those in a new way because I didn't feel that way. And I'm not not to like say it's not good, I, but the other his other movies do do things differently. No, no, I think you're yeah, you're totally right. And I don't I don't disagree. I, I guess I shouldn't say it's not even that it's like. Because I agree with all the other choices you're saying, and I do think that's totally intentional. Where it's like less heightened, like the one split screen use is very clever, but it's it's also really simple and understandable. Um, but this, I, not that this feels like it was trying to be like a new thing, but I was just like, this is such a simple idea, and the crossfade is something that we all know about. But it, it's like in that context, I just never seen it crossfading from a photo to someone in that room you know mm-hmm. uh, and i'm sure it has been done obviously and probably a million times um that's a, that's all i meant by that but it's like you're totally right uh, jackie has his gun right as she cocks it on ordell so funny and good uh <laughs> and that's in the book it's switching points of view back and forth building tension in the same way so that like split screen is such a clever adaptation of that um oh man uh the in the way ordell keeps turning off and on the dimmer light that's another 90s thing that <laughs> yeah, felt yeah. so like the noise it makes the really it really oh, he is and he just seems so evil it like kind of he almost reminds us probably gonna get me canceled it kind of his whole outfit and his whole vibe to me whatever reason also reminds me of jareth from the black uh crystal no no, no the black crystal uh the labyrinth the guy David, David Bowie's character, <laughs> yeah, it does That's have a similar so goblin esque weirdness to him. I, I totally the hair get that. And the, and the he's the braided self, yeah. yeah. A lot of choices. Um, I mean, yeah, he's clearly you know when he kills Beaumont. 
Also, Chris Tucker, just like fucking a bat out of hell in this movie. So funny. He For- is good, and he's like, I was like, he is. This was was this this was pre before he was a star, right? I, it's post Friday. Post so he'd Friday, already okay. he'd already blown up in Friday, but Rush Hour I think is the next year. Or no, no, no. This is after when was Rush Hour? Is this after Rush Hour? Because he seems young. He seems young in it. He does seem very young. Same year as Rush Hour. Very. Nice. I love the line where he's like, "I'm home, I'm high, like I'm yeah, going back yeah. out there." It's also like it's perfect. It illustrates like he's worried this guy's gonna rat on him. Oh, let's get the fastest talking actor alive, who just generally seems like he would say anything to play that guy. Like you're like, yeah, he probably should kill this dude. <laughs> Obviously, he shouldn't. Um, no, I know what you mean. He's. It is kind of hilarious that he would. I don't know. Maybe it's because you just don't trust Samuel Jackson. But to me, I'm like, I can't even believe he would get, I guess the key owes him a huge favor, but like it just, it increasingly gets more absurd. <laughs> like, you know, as a, he's like, I need help with something and he gets him out and then he's like, okay, I need help with this thing. That's intense. Cause we're going to Koreatown and I've never been there. I've the business with these people. Okay. I actually need you to get in the trunk. <laughs> like it just, to me, it's like, classic foot in the door technique like he got him to leave so he can now get him to do whatever but like it's to me i'm like this is don't do this chris tucker yeah dude you're gonna get killed i do love the that how it just stays in one long shot mm-hmm. when he drives just around the corner really good um so funny why would you get in the trunk it's it's wild i feel like okay here's let's let's tie up some loose ends with about jackie brown before we go into tarantino um I think this is funny. This the movies do this a lot, and it's I it just it's funny because when you think about the logic of it, and I can be logical to a fault when I'm trying to be creative, but it just makes me laugh. Is that uh, Ordell calls Max Cherry's phone like office phone by heart? It's like no way does he know. He just That's takes like, She's at Jackie's at the office, you know, and he's like, she better be the only one there when I call, or she better pick up the phone when I call. And Max is like, she will, and he takes out his phone, and just dials it. Just like you know, Max J, you've stopped by twice. I don't think you've called, sir. How do you? <laughs> that is so funny. That's a great point. Um, uh, there's some other. Uh, oh, a random thing that's part of the book, not in the movie. Lewis works for Max Cherry. That's how Ordell meets. Oh him. yeah, yeah. He he's gets like, him a job. He's like a there, mob because yeah. the the insurance company that the bail bonds company works with is just mobbed up, and they're like, we're gonna put this ex-con in here, and then he ends up robbing. Uh, um, Max Cherry and taking his guns and using them to hold up a liquor store, so they become like nemesises, um, nemesis, mm-hmm. um, nemesis. But yeah, I think, I it, like, yeah, I feel ahead. like he was Louis 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 Louis. Uh, Louis was much more of a. Uh, obviously, he's still a piece of shit because he kills Melanie and whatever. He, but he seems in the he's there's much more of a criminal element with him. Definitely. In Whereas this, yeah. he's just he's kind of just broken, which is funny mm-hmm. and sad. But yeah, there, there's definitely more of that, and you're more in his head more, and how he's like he starts drinking too much and mm-hmm. he kind of loses his edge a bit. Um, he's yeah. like a this is a ridiculous comparison to make, but it's a reason why it's like he it's 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 surprising that he leaves the page and he's cause it's like, he is in a, he, he is, a, that's a role that needs a great actor needs a great performance. It kind of reminds me, have you ever read um, pineapple expresses the script of that pineapple? Express? No, I, no, I haven't. Great I've read it and it's not great, but it's like, it's clearly like there's enough to me. It's like, it's enough bones there for them to improvise and have fun and like make a great movie. Cause pineapple expresses it's very boy centric movie, but it, it is very awesome. Um, it's like red. It's like Danny McBride playing red. Uh-huh. Like 
in the script, it's he's really not a character. He's just like a drug dealer dude who answers the door. But him having the ball and be like trying to get a motherfucking scholarship and like doing all that stuff, it's a very different performance. And it's a, ironically a similar type of movie in a way. But like it's like uh, it's it needed a really good performance and and it and it got it. It's great, great comparison. Good. Oh my god, he's <laughs> so funny. I mean, that's a guy who makes anything hilarious. He's, but he's so funny. Oh, he's so funny. He really uh, is. Um, and another thing I thought, because we talked about this with, I remember I made a comparison to the film I made. I'm trying to remember what we found some Easter egg and we were wondering if, if it was intentionally put in there, I forget which episode it was. Um, but Ordell is at the very end when he's talking, he's about to call Mr. Walker and, uh, he's in, he's with Sharonda in her apartment and it's like really gross. He says, this is some repugnant shit. And I'm pretty sure that's what Jules says in the back of the car when he's cleaning out marvin's brains you're He's totally like, this is some right. repugnant shit or you might say repugnant ass shit but it's like it felt like maybe a little easter egg um nodding to pulp fiction uh totally right one thing i uh this is funny that i didn't get i read the books so in the book his la the last place he's at is a fourth woman's home uh that's like shitty and she's like a heroin addict and i was like oh they only he only has three girls in the in the movie cuz he goes to Sharonda's place that's a different actress and it's a new home and she's like supposed to be like a heroin addict i think oh. cuz it feels like an adaptation of the book and that's why he walks in and he's like you live like this which is like <laughs> just so funny but is in oh, the that book makes too, sense. which is why she's like strung out on the couch even though otherwise yeah, she's that makes... like a very timid country girl well that makes sense cuz she's like oh don't mind her she won't even notice you and he's just she's just like asleep on the couch but now i'm like did we see Sharana other than the mall? I'm like, it all, no. I didn't. Okay, you only so hear like, about her because he describes her as this country girl that he told he lives in Hollywood. Um, okay. Right. But yeah, I had the same thought until I saw it this time and was specifically watching for it. Um, yeah, that that's funny. I bet that is uh, an Easter egg. Another funny little thing, just a few quick things I want to bang out. I got all, I got all this money right here in my Raptor bag. <laughs> Hilarious way to refer to a sports team. In the book, it's a Miami Dolphins bag, and I think this was because the Raptors had just become a team in the NBA in, like, 97 <laughs> or 98. Some great so product funny. placement. Trying to just help Toronto get the, get the team off, see what Tarantino could do for them, you know? Um, uh, that is a great detail there keep going uh last bit just got a shout out best performance in the movie and one of my favorite performances is robert forster he i mean okay pam greer is amazing in this whole movie so believable and it's cool this is kind of a comeback thing for her but he is like so he just feels like such a real guy and he's so soulful and sad and the way he his character tries to connect with her over music which isn't really in the book but him like looking through cassettes at the record store and then singing along to the music. And then when Ordell is surprised that he's listened to them, that's a real beautiful, like, I don't know, trying to understand another people's culture thing. Mm -hmm. When Ordell's like, you listen to the Delphonics? And he just goes, yeah, they're pretty good. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's so good. And everything with him, like when he, I love, he clearly is falling in love with her when he sees her. But then later when he tells her that he's decided to quit bail bonding, and she says, when did when did you decide that? And he goes, oh, Thursday night. And then it cuts to a different mm -hmm. angle of her walking towards him. You're just like, oh, Jesus Christ. Um, and the other bit of his performance that kills me every time is the first time he's in the mall, not intentionally meeting up with her, coming out of a movie. Mm -hmm. And she sees him first and yells his name. And he turns around. And it's like the most genuinely happy I've ever seen anyone <laughs> look. Which is like, totally how it feels when you're falling for someone. 
no totally i know exactly what you mean it's really that is a really sweet part he's great i mean i think i like his performance more as the coach and like mike but he's still <laughs> quite good in this um he's, yeah he's the coach and like mike um but all side note back when netflix was just ordering dvds i had a um i accidentally ordered the dvd of like mike to a girl i was sleeping with house um like Wait. 2011 pa- pause. Yeah. <laughs> So, <laughs> am I correct to infer from this that in 2011 you were earnestly trying to order the DVD of Like Mike? I thought it was streaming. Like I didn't understand. It was like it was kind of I I maybe I'm lying about this because its memory can shift it. But the way I remember it is, it was like there was, um, it was mostly DVDs at that point, but there was a streaming element to it. And I was trying to no, there definitely was streaming because I remember my friends and I used to watch Weeds, um. But uh, I I thought like because when you Google you know when you type stuff in and it's not there back in the day it was like do you want to order it and I didn't I thought it meant to stream so oh, I like clicked it and then I was trying to get it to stream and it just got <laughs> she like texted and it was funny because it was a girl I met over the summer and she went to a different college so then she texted me like just deducing I was one of like three people who probably had her Netflix she's like did you order like Mike to my house my parents are confused and I was like. <laughs> Uh, I think I might have. <laughs> that is so funny. Real quick, that re- that reminds me of uh, I uh, in two thousand eight, in between my junior and senior years of high school, there was a group quote unquote back east trip where we like went with our history teachers. You could pay like a certain amount of money and basically took a bus tour of the eastern cities. Like we went from D.C. to New York to Boston to Philly, something like that. Um, but the buses had uh, DVD players. And my friends were on the trip, but it was also a lot of cooler kids who I was kind of friends with, but like we weren't in the same group. Uh, and I brought some DVDs that I thought would be great to watch. And one of them was super bad, only, you know, a year into its life. And that was like the movie of high school. And I was like, this will make me cool. We got to play super bad. <laughs> it's super inappropriate, but I bet I can convince my teachers to let us play it, which is crazy in hindsight. Why would that they? is? Wow. Um, That's like when you told Chelsea about my baby blue project. I not would not advise <laughs> it. Can't even believe you did it. And wow, well, I'm guess so what? flattered. Neither worked. Um, <laughs> and uh, and so and but my teachers said yes. I bring my DVD case of Superbad up to the front, open it. Instead, my sister has switched it out with a copy of the Amanda Bynes vehicle, What a Girl Wants. <laughs> I thought you were going to say she's the man. Oh, God. What uh, a girl very, wants. Very embarrassing. Um, similar. God, I can't. I would just. Did you stew the whole bus ride? Just thinking I was about really, it. really embarrassed and mad. Yeah. Oh, God. That's what happens with DVDs. I was always switching them around based on, like, what was in the actual player god nostalgic nostalgic for the time of dvds you have a bunch of you have a bunch of blu-rays i do i do and i still use them but not as much as i'd like to um still buy them at least um i feel i'm trying to think we were talking like mike netflix this thing uh i had something to shoehorn in because it made me think of it i don't know that's really funny though sorry that you didn't have your your moment watching super red it's okay Okay, so let's 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 oh one quick thing too, and I can't believe I didn't see this in the end credits. I should actually go back and look, but I saw it on the Wikipedia credits, the beginning, and I'm like, it's so random. But I'm like, that guy who looks like he's getting his bag, is looks like Danny DeVito because he's a very unique body type. It was Danny oh, DeVito is so credited weird. as man getting bag, and I was like, he like has it's like he's wearing like a fedora. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's like a you don't see his face, but he's wearing like a white fedora and like a white suit. It kind of almost feels like a like the classic 
What do you think Miami is someone wearing like a white suit with like a teal, right. like a uh, uh, button up shirt? Yeah. And it's like, I was like, that looks like Danny DeVito. And then when I was just looking at the Wikipedia page, it, he has a credit on that page that he was man carrying ba- like suitcase. Danny DeVito also in Get Shorty, I believe. Wow. Maybe it's the same character. Well, that, on that note, I mean, we could do this. I would love to do an out of sight episode someday too, but really cool. Um, in So Ray Nicolette is briefly in the book out of sight as well. And the out of sight movie is like, you know, takes place in Miami and Detroit, but like it's set where it's set. Um, but the Nicolette characters in one scene and it's a year later and uh, um, Michael Keaton plays him in that movie too. So it's a cool connective tissue kind of thing. That um, is cool. Didn't you yeah. write some anecdote about how Tarantino like refused to get like have Miramax get paid for that because I didn't, but I read I did read that on either the IMDb trivia or Wikipedia, which is probably where you read it too. Um, yeah, I think it's like it was like they there could they could have asked for payment for using their character because they technically had the rights to him or something like that with Michael Keaton playing him and Tarantino refused to ask for money, which is really cool. That is cool. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. So so. For you, a good segue into Tarantino. I wrote this down just as a as a fun discussion question for the pair of us. Who do you think is the best, like the most iconic or your favorite uh, Tarantino duo? Great. So we got question. like Rick and Cliff. We got Jules and Vince. Vince and Mia. Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. Mister White and Mister Orange. Jackie and Max. Shoshana and Frederick Zoller. Django and Schultz. Feel free to throw anybody else in there, but those are the ones that came to mind for me. These are great. This is so fun. Uh, I, I mean, I feel like obviously Jules and Vincent are the most iconic one. Um, I almost feel like poster. Yeah, it is. It's hard to separate them because that's who you think of that movie. But I, I think Vincent Mia to me is is the most I, interesting part of that movie to me. I was going to say the same thing. That's my favorite sequence of Pulp Fiction by far. It's so good. It's so good. And then like he just there's so much. Under, there's so much like beneath the surface like he want, he like seems like he's like actually in love with her yeah and he's yeah. like doing the whole mirror monologue and then he kisses her goodnight like blows an air kiss when she finally gets in and like he's like they have the whole the obviously the dance scene and then the dialogue between them is just so good like i just love when he's like as far as i'm concerned marcellus could live his entire life and never know about this like um and then she's like, I'd be in just as much trouble. He's like, somehow I doubt that. Then the call back with the with the joke from Fox Force 5, it's just oh. so good. It's so good. And you get the sense that she, like, it's also huge for her. She's like, this is my chance to live outside of this, like, you know, kind of ter- terrible life with this gangster that I'm living. Um, I, You know, and it feels like she may love him too. And then it all goes to, to shit because she ODs. <laughs> it goes... As bad as it could go. Um, okay, so I kind of cut you off. So you had uh, we we're both in agreement on this. It sounds like, but w- once you give me your, your runner up, then yeah, I would say that. But I would I would go I would go. I mean, I like this movie more than you, but I would go Rick and Cliff as number two. I'd love them so much together. Um, <laughs> oh, Mr. White and Mr. Orange is good too because I just hear Harvey Keitel yelling at him not to die. You're gonna be okay. You're gonna be okay. <laughs> say the goddamn words. You're gonna be okay. Uh, and then Mr. Orange, who's secretly got an English accent, and he's just going all over the place. <laughs> he does. They can that's smell so it on me. Um, Jackie and Max. And Frederick is good, too, I think. That's good. Jackie and Max is great, but it's also kind of different since they're like a couple. Um, but also good. Uh, well, do you think they're a couple? That's a good question because it's like they oh. kiss and have that passionate thing, but like 
I don't know if they are. Well, that's another real quick. Another good point is in the book they fuck like halfway through and then several times throughout, which mm-hmm. is also, I mean, to make the movie that much more chaste is so interesting on his part and more effective. Just that one kiss, that slightly gross, very real mm-hmm. feeling like older person kiss that gives him just a little bit of <laughs> lipstick on his on his lips. Oh, I remember. I should probably just leave this out, but yeah, that. That is really funny, but it also brought back what I wanted to say that I had forgotten. I was watching this with Corey, and she was surprisingly into it. And, uh, um, you know, this the part that you were talking about where Max is buying the Delphonics tape. Uh-huh. And then he's, like, walking and smiling. And I'm like, I just said to Corey, I'm like, it appears he's interested in pursuing an interracial relationship. <laughs> like, it feels like that's what the whole scene is, is, like, him being like, I'm going for it. I'm getting I this. I mean, yeah. you're totally right. Yes. It's like it's like him reading a book that's like, so you want to pursue an interracial relationship. Get to know the culture. Buy a tape and listen to it on the way to work, even if you're not interested. Um, no, it's a that's a I love that scene. He's also has that shit eating grin in that scene too. You're so you're totally. Oh, one other great Max Cherry thing, uh, that I feel like has become a meme kind of online, but um when he lies telling Winston he's gonna go to the movies, which we already know he does go to the movies a lot, which rules. Um, but he asks him what he's going to see, and he says, I'm not sure. Something that starts soon and looks good. Just such, what a great worldview. That is great. God, movie going as 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 a thing. Got to so bring good. it back. Oh, Django and Schultz, also good. A lot of good duos. Great, great, uh, great thing to point out. There's a lot of good duos. It feels like it's Tarantino and a genre character. It's like Tarantino is a genre character with someone who's yeah, a different person. I mean, person. totally. That's certainly, I certainly see Schultz as Tarantino. And I think that's very intentional. I love that, especially when that's a real interesting like take on, because he's like commodifying this black character to be this mm-hmm. mythic figure. I don't know if that's intentional. I think Tarantino does a lot of things he doesn't realize that I find interesting and kind of telling. Um, but he does that, and then there's the great line at the end, which to me is what the violence in the movie is all about, uh, when he kills DiCaprio, and then he goes, I just couldn't help myself. That, to me, <laughs> is Tarantino being like, if I make it a movie about the cowboys and slaves, like, or and uh, you know these slave owners mm-hmm. are going to get violently killed because I have to. Um, what do you what do you think about what do you think about this on that note? Um, I listened to this interview and I actually had the same thought and I was like, wow, I'm I'm look at me. But um, I don't know. It's I'm curious your feedback. So I'm I don't know how much I like Django. Mm. I don't I I think it's in the I still like it. It's still entertaining. It's very watchable. Um, put it. It's obviously the parts are really hard to watch, but um, I think it's in the bottom half for me. But I was listening to our uh, an actor we both really like. Uh, fuck, I'm blanking on his name. Um, what is his name? He's in. He's a James Baldwin type of character in French Dispatch. We, Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. Yeah. They did an interview with him about Django and what they thought his opinion. It was like it was like something like uh like sway in the morning, something just random. And he was just saying how he liked it, but he also felt like he thought uh, that Schultz killing Calvin Candy really undermined the whole film because it's like if you're making a movie about a slave becoming the hero the slave needs to kill the slave owner like the symbolism of that having like kind of the white guy the white savior for lack of a better word doing that act and then like having Django like kind of crying over his body it was he was kind of being like I've really he was being 
pleasant about it, but he was like, I really disagreed with that choice kind of because it's like didn't. Very interesting. That I makes just, sense. I, I couldn't help but to feel the same way because it was kind of like he does rescue the girl, but he doesn't. That, he has the hilarious vengeance at the end where he's just killing left and right, but it is, I don't know. What do you make of that? I mean, well, it's interesting because it's like there are certain ways that I feel the movie's very critical of Schultz because he's a bounty hunter and a killer, and I don't think Tarantino thinks this clearly because then Django ends up killing a shit ton of people. Um, but to me, it's more like, you know, he's he doesn't have to be violent. Django has no choice and is put in this position, but Schultz is a bad guy. You know, he's a white dude mm-hmm. who doesn't have to do these things. And obviously Calvin Candy isn't a bad person to kill as far as that goes, but killing anyone's bad. And so I kind of feel like that, you know, like he's implicating himself and like, I have no choice but to be violent, even though it's fucked up. Um, but then obviously that's negated by, <laughs> by Django killing a bunch of people afterwards. Oh, and that's I, no, that's interesting take though that you that it's more like he's like by him killing Candy then he's also culpable culpable like he's not getting away out of this too and it makes adds a better layer to his character. That's how I feel is that he is the hero but he or he is a hero like Django but he like he's choosing to play in this world where Django has no fucking choice. Um Okay, yeah, that's so interesting contrast. There are a lot of things that I don't fully I'm like, I don't know how to feel about in Django. There's plenty of stuff I love that I think is really hilarious or moving. Uh, I think Jamie Foxx is great in it. The Samuel L. Jackson character, very interesting. I know people feel both ways about him. Um, yeah, that role, I remember I think he uh, – I think this is – I'm just going to put this in quotes, but I, I believe he said when when Tarantino asked, gave him the script and asked, told him who he, he wanted him to play. What was that guy's name again? Jeff, what's his name? I don't remember. I just think of the Kendrick line, like Samuel Ellen Django. <laughs> he said, in quotes, you want me to play the most repugnant Negro in the history of cinema? It seems right. Yeah. And it's like, it is interesting. It's like, oh, yeah, that's like, he's like, I feel like the point of view is he's even worse than Candy. Like, because he's right, betraying. Right. In a certain way, yeah. right. Uncle Tom way. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but Django to me is, I felt like it has... It, it it's a little long and yeah it's a little bit less i think it's i think it's cool it's ultimately a good ultimately a good movie but it's i don't think to me it's just like the revisionist history that tarantino does i think it's works at its i think inglorious bastards is amazing um i think that is probably my second favorite tarantino my first is is pulp fiction and then it goes inglorious bastards and then um for me i feel like the the hit the history and this is my critique of once upon a time in Hollywood. And then I'm curious to your take on it is like, so if we're comparing those two films, right, what happens in Inglorious bastards, they kill Hitler. Right. But it really isn't that different from how the war ended. You know, Hitler does die. And obviously there's conspiracy theories that he didn't, but um, Hitler dies really thereafter that, you know, the um, Axis powers are defeated and Nazis are living in plain sight around the world there's not fundamentally that different obviously killing hitler is very cathartic and it's awesome to see so it like totally works whereas like once upon a time in hollywood it's like sharon tate actually gets murdered in a horrible gruesome way she's not like giggling and inviting rick a rick rick dalton type into her life like her in a way i know you're like there's i've had the other i've given this argument and someone has said like well no you're you're viewing like what it could have been 
and then it makes that contrast stand out so much. And I'm to me, I'm like, I don't know. I just don't think it works as well. What are your it's thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's all these, all three of these movies. Yeah, it's so strange because I've heard both sides of it. Like, obviously, I think Inglorious Bastards is, is better than Django Unchained, and that's certainly the commonly held opinion. You know, that's kind of the one now where people are like, it's that or Pulp Fiction. And honestly, now Jackie Brown used to be a contrarian take. I wish I was still a contrarian, but now that's kind of become mm-hmm. like the cool kid best movie answer. It's the inherent is, vice of exactly. Yeah, in so many ways, you're so <laughs> yeah. right. Um, just like we talked about on that episode. Um. But it's interesting because I've heard that's a good point about it doesn't change how the war ended much. But I've also heard, you know, some Jewish friends of mine admire a lot about Inglorious Bastards, but also feel like with Django, it's like it's it gets to be cathartic and you're killing a plantation owner. And that's one plantation owner who didn't exist. You know, maybe he's based on a real guy. I actually don't know. But there was no one named that. Whereas like it's like, yeah, Hitler didn't wasn't killed that way. You know, and that they find kind of offensive, you know. Yeah, that didn't happen. Kind of like you're saying about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but obviously. Mm. But I, I see what you're saying. and I Oh, because well, it's because it's not co- like historical context. It's real people, you know. Yeah, and specifically with Hitler, where it's like, yeah, you can pretend that um, and have fun and make a, like a spaghetti Western about that. But that didn't happen. I mean, I didn't I never felt that way. I think Glorious Bastards is so interesting. And I've also relating to Thomas Pinchon, have heard some people say that they think it's like the closest you can get to like a kind of gravity's rainbow adaptation in certain ways. Which interesting. I totally get just with like the World War Two and the jumping around and like pop culture flying into it. Very interesting. Um but yeah, with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's funny because I remember some people being like, You don't want the ending spoiled and it's like this dude's made like two of his last mm-hmm. three movies about real events, real ish history events have been like, we know what's going to happen, you know? Yeah. Like, it's not, not that she would live necessarily, but it's obviously like something with the Manson family is going to happen. That didn't happen. Like, yeah, that's, what, that's his thing now. But I think that inevitability of it adds so much to it. And it, yeah it's a movie that to me operates on like kind of seems to operate on a level different than he can even understand in the same way that i feel like Django implicates himself with the violence at the end because for the first two thirds of once upon a time in hollywood that's the movie that feels most akin to jackie brown to me it's a hangout movie mm-hmm. you know nothing crazy's happening it's slow it's talky you're just like again luxuriating in this world and these people um and then at the end, it becomes one of his most violent movies, almost exclusively against women who were the Manson, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Manson family. So, sure. Um, do you think it is? I'm quote, do you think it is more violent towards women? Like, I know the Hateful Eight got the same criticism. I've never actually seen the Hateful Eight. I know it got the same criticism because um, Jennifer Jason Lee gets like the shit kicked out of her. And I'm like, are you just, you just never see that? So it, it seems so. Like I'm, Tarantino said before, like Pulp Fiction, for example, isn't that violent. But when you do violence correctly, it's really jarring. Yeah, um, I think I mean, I think, well, with The Hateful Eight, the whole idea is that they're all terrible, you know, mm-hmm. um, and she's like the worst and owns that. So it's a kind of thing of like how much agency she's a woman character who's choosing to be this bad and is getting the shit beaten out of her. It is hard to watch and not be like, does he kind of hate women? Um, <laughs> but obviously he makes movies with so many strong female characters. With Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's some of that, but it's also kind of like, well, these are the people. Like, he's mm-hmm. telling this story, and, like, you know, whatever, three of the four people there were women. Um, it is crazy. I, I also think it's, like, 
that's like the whole point of that movie's relationship to violence is it's about screen violence and i you know sorry I'm, I'm always cutting you off i just i but i don't think i and i need to rewatch because i've seen it one time i saw it at tarantino's theater i had so much expectations it was it was and it's i have unfair criticisms because it's just not the movie that i wanted you know um and so it's, everything is cut with that it's not this isn't really a fair criticism but to the point though that it's about on-screen violence i thought that was really shoehorned in because i felt like all of a sudden one of the manson girls is like this is a, just a problem i have with the movie she was like but what if man we killed that guy man this fictional dude man who he was on bounty law and like works to show in society like why is the double standard society has it's like base it's like at the end of the great gatsby when nick is saying like maybe this is because we're what from the middle west and this is what ha- like he's he's trying he's trying to sh- have this it be within a, a, a school of criticism do you know what i mean Totally, and I totally. and I don't think it's about. I think that's something that I think that's something that he played with because that was a pl- that was something that isn't woven throughout the film for me. Does it? Is it for you? I've only seen it once. Yeah, I, I mean, I know what you, I know what you mean, and that it, that line does feel shoehorned in. I do think that I do think that performance is hilarious, but walking a very <laughs> fine line, very cartoony. Man, um, love a man. Um, but no, I will say I do think almost every single scene of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is is about that and building to that particularly with with cliff and rick like so there's the first scene the al pacino scene at um, musso and frank where he's explaining that you need to be seen beating people up on screen like that is the whole thing with hollywood if you want to keep your career alive you got to be the guy who does it um Mm -hmm. there's everything with cliff you know cliff's his stunt man his stunt double we see you know they're they seem the same until we see like jarring acts of violence from cliff there's even the great shot of him hopping up on the roof that's exhilarating but is like shocking in how like Mm -hmm. real it seems he beats the shit out of the dude at at a spawn ranch it's Mm -hmm. shocking he may or may not have killed his wife oh yeah that's he's in he's in the war and at the end they're like we're gonna kill rick dalton because he he is the violence that gets put out there what they don't know is cliff booth is there and cliff booth a murderer he's the one who does these things the only thing that rick dalton actually does on screen <laughs> that we know of is use a flamethrower which is the only thing he brings to the terrible conclusion <laughs> to the movie. so the guy who's possibly evil a hard laborer that's taken advantage of doesn't make good money lives in a trailer it's like if you want what you see on screen this is the real deal. Like, this is what it is. It's women getting their faces bashed in by an evil guy. And then at the end, Cliff Booth, who's the only one who did anything except burn the girl alive, <laughs> is taken to the hospital, left alone. And who's left over to reap the rewards of the now impossibly alive Sharon Tate and her friendship? Rick Dalton, who didn't do anything. Like, it's like Hollywood reasserting itself. Like, we can't accept what, like, the reality of the violence that we take in every day. You know, wow, this is a very smart, sophisticated take. I think you have me convinced. <laughs> I have no, that I'm, I am impressed. I'm like, damn, that's a really, that's a really uh, nuanced, uh, holistic view of it. And like I said, my, I felt like all my criticism was unfair, but that just, that is interesting about, I just need to rewatch it. That's, yeah, very good stuff. A plus. Thanks, man. You're so sweet. Um, the one part I will say is like, 
the Tarantino moments that you only get from him. It's like he is a monopoly on this product and you either love it or you don't, but it's the only place to get it is when um fucking Tex Watson is like, I'm the devil. And then Oh my god. And then he goes, That ain't it. <laughs> like, <laughs> so somewhere. funny. No, he goes he goes, No, nah, something dumber than that. <laughs> <laughs> that Brad Pitt is. is so funny in that whole scene when he's on acid. <laughs> he is very funny. Uh yeah okay I you're you're you got me here I I gotta just give it a rewatch so um, it, you've you've tipped your hand you said Jackie Brown is your favorite what's your what's your uh your three that's hard yeah the top four are definitely this Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Pulp Fiction and Inglorious Bastards um I need to rewatch Inglorious Bastards it's the kind of thing I mean it came out my freshman year of college and I feel like I watched it like ten times in a year like it was a thing mm-hmm. to just do with friends like put it on. And I haven't seen it probably since then. Um, Pulp Fiction, it's one of those things where you're like, I don't want to pick Pulp Fiction because it's everyone's favorite movie. But then you watch it and you're like, yeah, this is maybe my favorite movie. (laughs) It's so fun. It's not as – there are moments of it that are meaningful. You know what I mean? I I think it's like – to me – and again, people like what they like. It's hard to like derive a deep meaning from it or like something that's like, oh, like it's really – emotionally relevant or something but it's like the funnest most stylized coolest movie i think that's out there totally totally and it uh and it's so self-aware with these people who think they're so cool and they are so cool until they're like pushed like and it feels like i don't know i never know how self-aware he is like there's the scene where tim roth uh, says garcon and she's like garcon mm-hmm. means boy and that's like <laughs> in this movie of this american dude trying to rip off all his french heroes you know and it's like you're not that cool um <laughs> i don't know it's so he does so well at this i'm just envious i just remember he does not this and let me give this example it's just funny but i Mike DeBicaro, my good friend, and I wrote a web series together in like 2016. We never produced any of it, but we had, I wrote, we both wrote, we wrote like six episodes together and we each wrote one that was just by ourselves. And the ones that he, the one he wrote and the one I wrote without each other just weren't as, weren't good at all. And, but the one I wrote was like, it's so dumb, but it was based off something that happened in college. When I was in college, there was like free HIV testing. And there is a story my friend Dwayne told me that he went to get tested and um, because it was also STD testing in general. And then there was this um, a kid ran out of the room because he had a different color paper than everyone else. So he got like a positive test. Right. Right. So I tried to incorporate that into like waiting. So I was like, Mike was getting an STD test and my character is waiting in the in the waiting room and talking to a girl and like the girl, they really hit it off but then she gets the different colored paper. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Right. So I tried to write that. And then Mike just, I just, we, I started laughing so hard. We started laughing so hard. We had to stop reading. I'm like, okay, we can't, we can't do any of this. Cause Mike goes, Oh my God. It was like, I wrote some line that was like, I, my character said something funny and she's like, me too. I agree. And then Mike goes, because we were written by the same person. <laughs> we started laughing so hard. I'm like, fuck, this sucks. I'm sorry. It's a cool premise, I guess, but it's so it's just shitty. And then I feel like Tarantino does that so well where it's like he gets people on same or different pages in a way that's like so fucking awesome. That great example. That's really funny. It is a good yeah. premise. It's it is a, there is an interesting point there, but it's so hard to write people connect. I think it's really hard to write people connecting. Yeah. Yeah, it's I almost feel like you have to just write a skeleton and then have actors have real chemistry like the before movies. 
Oh, sure, sure. Where it feels improvised and so real. Do you think what's like for you? What's a this is not Tarantino now, but what's like a what's like the pinnacle of romance for you in a movie? Like, what's you're like, oh, that's what I want. I mean, God, probably, probably that Garden movie. State. The second. <laughs> <laughs> just want a down chick who will make me listen to the shins uh, right along in my sidecar (laughs) no probably before sunset that's like an obvious answer um but yeah oh it's so so moving and and feels real you know and they're both shitty in ways that feel like like oh he's just like me for real um yeah probably what about you i don't know I, i i get uh I don't know. I really had a big response to her <laughs> recently, right, but right, I don't. Uh, but I, I mean, like it's, it's dark and sad, but in a from same time as Garden State, but has actually aged well. Gotta always shout out Eternal Sunshine. Oh, um, that's a good one too. But that one, to me, it's but, tough because I love the complicated the the. Uh, what movie did I watch with Corey? That she was like, oh Greenberg. She was like, they should didn't think they should be together at the end. I'm like, yeah, no shit. But like they are and that's (laughs) that's life yeah so i always feel that way i've never felt it because anything that feels like these people are just perfect for each other yeah yeah it's like that those stories aren't those aren't those are boring but at the same time i don't want a fraught relationship in real life (laughs) that's why why eternal sunshine works so well to me because it's like oh yeah they shouldn't be together and this is going to keep happening but that's also great and how it works when you love someone yeah. Oh God. Okay. Well, we're, I think we're over two hours, but I mean, I can keep again. going, but, uh, what's, how should we finish this? Is there anything, this is our Tarantino episode. So we, it's true. We... Yeah. Um, let's see what else, what else do we have? Uh, love kill bill volume two specifically. Cause I feel like the end of that is Tarantino. Oh, here's one is Tarantino's kind of Romare movie. I love Romare parts of this movie also feel that way. There's one shot in particular in, um, in the mall and it's just an establishing shot of the food court and two people who are like dressed like you know mid 90s elaine bennis are just walking through like the (laughs) ugly ass food court that just looks like an 80s and 90s romare movie like and i know tarantino like i've heard him talk about how he would always recommend people pauline at the beach at the manhattan beach uh video archives rental story worked at and this feels like a little bit like his romare movie um but yeah love kill bill volume two and volume one uh love them both um something about as cool as it is the anime interludes in volume one kind of like annoy me so i like that volume two doesn't have those um i've never seen volume two i need to see it i've seen volume uh, one yeah it's awesome i really like it um i haven't seen any of those in a long time only you know it came to death proof pretty late have you seen death proof i have not i've seen uh i've i illegally streamed about 33 minutes of it and I kind of felt like that, and I just, again, like anything that's cut with a movie, if I've only seen once, I feel like I can't actually give an opinion on. I feel like it was the criticism of it feels like Tarantino is ripping off himself. I did feel that way. Continue. What were your thoughts? I, I get that. Um, I do think, so in addition to that movie being part of the Grindhouse thing, it's split into two halves. Death Proof itself is. Um, so there's the one you watch that's like set in Austin and they go to that bar, but there's mm-hmm. a second half that's mostly action that I think is the best part of the movie. And it's really, really good and hilarious. Um, and it's basically like the first half is, is Kurt Russell winning. The second <laughs> half is like, he meets five women, one of whom is like 
like actually Uma Thurman stunt double Zoe Bell from Kill Bill, and it's like they like beat him basically, uh, and it's awesome and really funny. Okay, well, God, I gotta re- just every time we talk, dude, I'm just like I gotta watch more movies. Like I, <laughs> <laughs> like I'm like, um, uh, I just you know, it's I I love how you're you have such a, a well of knowledge here. Okay, last question here, I think who do you who who do you think is the who do you like more who do you think is the better filmmaker pta or tarantino paul thomas anderson but i might like this movie more than any paul thomas anderson movies okay what's your top fi- what's your top five combined filmography then that's a big question just to throw at you <laughs> you go you go you go first okay mine is um the thing is, okay, so I want to say inherent vice first because it's like e- very easy to say. I will say I don't know if I think my first just going off of ex- the first time I saw I saw Pulp Fiction, I was like 21. Like seeing Pulp Fiction as a 21-year-old, like you just have such a big response. I think I'll go Pulp Fiction 1, I think I'll go Inherent Vice 2, and then I'll go The Master and then Inglorious Bastards and then um There Will Be Blood. <sighs> boy this is a great question you've outdone yourself <laughs> i didn't expect to combine top five questions now we have to now we have to release these episodes back to back i feel like oh um, no we could do too it's so dumb but it would be cool my friend john grosh and i in high school we would do our dream 11 for soccer and we'd put oh, like it in so the slots fun. like we could do something like that with pta and tarantino characters that's cool um that's a good idea. Um, maybe we'll do that. That we'll do. There will be blood. And we'll put that at the end of that. Um, yeah. I would go Jackie Brown. <sighs> Inherent Vice, The Master. Hmm. I'll go Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Phantom Thread. Sorry to Pulp Fiction. Wow. Okay. Damn. I think that's a good that's a good that way could, to I think that could be this. totally changed. I but. know I feel the exact same way, but I feel like that's a good way to certain movies just provide different functions, and it's like yeah, like I like Inherent Vice more now, but like I think I had a strong response then. I feel like you're something similar for you with with some of your picks. Definitely, definitely. All right, man. Well, I think I feel pretty good about most stones are not are are I think have been unturned here. You feeling good? I think so. Real quick, would you take the money? Would you try to take the money? Oh, that's another thing I wrote down. Okay, the th- I don't agree with it. It seems like it's tough for me because it's like I, it's 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 hard to just ascribe point of view or intent from a film. But it feels like every character thinks this isn't real money. Everyone's like, just yeah, take true. it. It's who care whose money is this? Except it's like, which, which is why that one scene of with Michael Keaton's great, where she thinks like she's like got him on the ropes yeah. and he like loves her, and he's like, except that's not the position held by the ATF. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. There is there is that opinion, but it doesn't seem like it's like a personal thing. It doesn't. I don't agree. It is like blood gun money. Yeah, um, right, right. I think I would take an amount that I feel like I could siphon off and get away with. I take like 17 K. I wouldn't. Right. 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 <laughs> like, this is a great specific answer. Like when she like leaves Melanie a cherry on top, that's a great moment. She goes, booyah. Yeah. Um, but then that gets her. Cause it confirms her narrative. Yes. She had the Mark bills on her. So smart. Yeah. She's so smart. Yeah. Or the line where Max cherry is like $500,000 will always be missed by someone. Yeah. I would never, I would coward out. Um, would you, would you take any? Maybe, maybe a little bit. 
no, it's I'd like two hundred dollars. I'd probably be yeah, right. I'd probably be so afraid. I don't think I could. I don't even know if I've ever been in any sort of comparable situation of finding something and not. You know um, what? Once uh, this is perhaps my only truly criminal act, though I did get a speeding ticket a week ago, which sucked. Oh, um, did, were your was your heart pounding when you got pulled over? My heart was I, pounding. The dude both. Um, he was asking about dents I had on the side of my car, and at first I didn't get it, then realized he was trying to be like, bet you get in a lot of accidents driving this fast, <laughs> don't you? They also God. made fun of my long hair. Uh, what? Like, he was like- That Charlie saw... Manson again? Exactly. Because <laughs> he saw on my driver's license that I had shorter hair, oh, and then he okay. was like, well, why do you have long hair? And I was like, you know, the pandemic, and he's like, couldn't find a barber? And then I was like, okay. And then Sorry, my girl, dude. my girlfriend was with me, and he's like, well, does she like it? And she was like, yeah, I do. And he's like, well, that's all that matters, right, buddy? And it's like, did you just like happy wife, happy life me? Okay, like, though, that officer? pisses me off so much because the only way that that this story needs to end with him letting you off of the pass. You don't get he, to take pop <laughs> shots at someone and then write them a fine. That's fucking bullshit. He did. Re- he did. I was I was going eighty eight in a seventy my bad uh and he did only put me down as going 75 in a 70 okay. so there was that all right okay um, okay but no the only <laughs> i worked uh in an after school program and one of my coworkers. this included a preschool i didn't work in the preschool but it was like the same mm-hmm. company and area yeah yeah uh, and one of my coworkers had an adderall prescription and one of my friends wanted to buy some and i was like yeah i guess my friend has adderall and then as i was doing it i realized like i was essentially doing a drug deal in a preschool um but i like you know i like said that i lied about like a ten dollar difference and kept that difference so that's probably so the closest 10 bucks you have t- 10 bucks of, of adderall money on your on yeah. blood on your hands it was like they wanted 40 bucks and i told my friend they wanted 50 bucks and kept the difference which is fair but also you know oh a finder's fee there criminal. you go finder's fee no that's not criminal um i thought it was like i, I think it would have been maybe worse if it was if you were actually doing the amount you know what i mean you're like right, this is, right, right. just take it out of my whatever and give it that that one might be a little bit more criminal but no there's a finder's fee Come on. Uh, yeah okay cool well we've exposed <laughs> we've confronted our demons we've let our skeletons out of our closet we've talked about quentin tarantino uh fantastic filmmaker jackie brown a great movie rum punch a very fun book elmore leonard who is the Hemingway and Steinbeck of the crime genre. Not uh, the Raymond Chandler. Not the Raymond Chandler. All right, Tanner. Great to see you, buddy. You too, Matt. Thanks, listeners. (laughs) Bye.